Back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. We're back. Back for another stretch of free episodes, baby. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, in, I'm looking forward to these freebie episodes, man. Yeah, this one especially. Actually, I was going to mention we probably shouldn't even ramble much in the beginning of this one because there's so much to cover with this case. It's going to be a long episode, inevitably. This crime line is super long. Yeah. So interesting. I was just so glad I found I've, I've been kind of wanting to find a case like this. Uh, I've been wanting to do a, a case with a, a contract killer slash hitman, especially one where you get to hear, you know, the hitman's take on things. This this guy actually felt like he had some morals and he was mainly taking contracts to kill drug dealers. Right. And he felt as though their lifestyle was inevitably going to lead to them being either imprisoned or killed anyway. So why not make a bunch of money from just ending them now? Exactly. I also um, like how it's it's fairly recent. Like this is not yeah. this is not, you know, Back in the forties, yeah, a hitman like this is a hitman in the two thousands in Detroit, which is pretty yep. pretty fucking cool. I mean, I mean, it's not cool. Killing people's not cool. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Right. But it's just interesting well, this, to get a glimpse into this underworld that we all know exists. You know. Oh, you get a deep glimpse. You get how he did it, why <laughs> yeah. he did it, and then you get yeah. it. See, you get to see it spiral out of control. And this this case has a few twists as well. Right. Um, yeah, definitely. It and it has uh, also a tale of someone who was wrongfully convicted and spent many years behind bars for a forced confession as well. No so, doubt. yeah, let's, uh, let's dive into it since there's so much to talk about. All right, let's do it, man. Okay, I'm recording now. Could you state your name for me? Vincent Mothers. Okay. Uh, Vincent, um, why are you coming forward with this information? Prison is, is extremely difficult. Even when you're guilty, and it has to be more so when you not. I actually was around COs and whatnot with the uh, um, with the kid that was locked up, and they were telling me like you should never let him out because you know this is he was he was terrible you know as a, as an inmate, um, fucking up, doing crazy stuff, um, fighting stabbing, whatever, everything. Um, and in the process of a couple conversations I did have with him, um, I saw the same, you know, same thing. And I told my lawyer that I believe if he ever got out, he was going to kill somebody. Somebody ended up explaining to me something that I didn't look at was how would you feel, you know, if you were 14 in prison basically for the rest of your life and something you didn't do probably would feel the same exact way he did me in here acting crazy and whatnot too so I had never thought about it that way and so um I, I you know I know firsthand how bad this is so you're doing it because you don't think someone should suffer in prison for life uh, if they didn't do the crime correct Palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy There's vomit on his sweater already Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous on the surface He looks calm and ready to drop bombs But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down The whole crowd goes so loud He opens his 
mouth But the words won't come out He's choking how Everybody's joking now The clocks run out Time's up Over blow Snap back to reality Oh, there goes gravity Oh, there goes gravity Choke, he's so mad But he won't give up daddies He know he won't have it He knows his whole backs of these ropes It don't matter He's no, he knows that But he's broke He's so stagnant He knows when he goes back To his mobile home That's when he's back to the lab again Yo, this whole rhapsody Better go capture this moment And hope it don't pass You better lose yourself in the music The moment you want it You better never let it go Only get one shot Do not miss your chance to blow This opportunity comes once in a lifetime You better lose yourself in the music The moment you want it You better never let it go Only get one shot Do not miss your chance to blow This opportunity comes once in a lifetime You better, you better He was on the other side of the street Um Stuck in traffic Um It was a uh a party going on at the city airport uh, called the Black Party. Uh, so everybody that was anybody was there. Um, I saw he using a Corvette, saw his Corvette on the other side of the street, like I said, stuck in traffic. Um, I went up a couple blocks to uh, uh, Finley and parked myself and Jeff got out and walked through traffic towards the back of the Corvette um, and before I could make it to the car um, he I'm assuming saw me either either in the rear view or, I don't think he turned his head around to see me so I, I believe he saw me approaching in the rear view um, and before he can get a chance to reach for a gun or weapon um, I, I opened fire before I made it to the, path, to the driver door the passenger um he appeared to be, I don't know, like reaching underneath the seat. I'm not sure what he was doing, but I don't know. Sometimes some people are trying to grab something. Sometimes people are just trying to get under the dashboard. So I can't say for certain which one of those two he was trying to do. Um, but Jeff was on that side of the car. Um, and I shot all the way until I made it to the driver door. Um, at which point, uh, Q still had money in his hand. I just rushed through the window, grabbed that money. Um, and then ran back across Connors, uh, where Whithorn at, it's a, it's a gas station. I ran up Whithorn behind the gas station and made it to the car. Um, Jeff ended up going up Connors to Finley and made it to the car. Um, by now there's a police car, uh, uh, a marked Detroit police car trying to get to us and it ended up crashing in the process. Um, the, the passenger made it out of the car. The driver never got out of the police car, so I don't know if in the crash he was hurt or if the door crumbled and he couldn't get out. Um, but we made it to the car. Um, the police uh, opened fire. Um, we were able to pull off, though, anyway, um, without getting hit or anything. How many shots did you fire? Uh, without being able to say for certain, more than six. Okay. Did you um? Did you um? Ever fire when you got up to the side of the car door? Yes. How many times? Once. Where did you? Shoot? I fired about three from when I was still estimating the back bumper. Maybe another three about a third of the length of the car, and then again as I got to the to the actual window. 
Okay, and when you got to the window, where did that, where did you shoot the victim there, Mr. Seegers? Well, towards the head. I don't know if he's actually, he was hitting the head, but at his head. All right, our case this week is a guy by the name of Vincent Vito Smothers. He was a hitman in Detroit, uh, very successful at it, uh, but he had a, he, he was like an honor student, you know, you didn't see this, even though he grew up, it comes down to the area I, he grew up in, I guess, and a lack of opportunity, he was, uh, ended up being a product of his environment, even though he had a lot of potential right. early on, but he grew up in, you know, the eight mile side of Detroit. Um, yeah. South of eight after mile. After that city right? had fallen apart. Yeah. South of eight mile. Yep. Well, and also losing his dad at a, at a very tough yeah. age too. His dad was a big figure in his life, spent a lot of time with him. He, he kind of needed that discipline. He, I think he liked it. He liked that. discipline. Yeah. His dad was definitely a disciplinarian and the, the different, uh, the siblings of the, the Smothers family, they all kind of reacted differently to their father's discipline. Some of them lashed back and kind of dove into the criminal world earlier because their dad was, you know, you could say abusive pretty much, but Vito seemed to kind of like that level of discipline. Yeah, it kind of wrangled he him He was in. a very disciplined guy himself. Right, right. He almost seemed like he was, he was, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, like he might have turned out to be like his dad. Right. Well, you know, you can say what you want, but someone who is a, uh, an assassin or a hitman for a, this long, for that long of a period of time and had that many hits, you have to have some sort of discipline and intelligence. You don't just, I mean, I, I do realize he's, he's taken out people who are in the game. He's talking, he's taken out people who are drug dealers or related and such. So I know they're, they're not, that, takes, high that actually takes more discipline in my opinion, because they're, they're on edge. You know, he talked a lot about that. Well, they're on edge, but also about. the cops don't care as much is what I'm getting at. They're they're not oh, putting yeah, yeah. forth as much effort. They're not investigating it as exactly vehemently. They're saying, "Oh, okay, this yeah. is just another drug dealer off the streets." Well, he got what was coming to him, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, we we know where he makes his mistake. He kills someone that the cops deem important, you know, later on. But yeah, and he also didn't finish the job. Um, he had some bad accomplices that went on hits with him that weren't as disciplined and didn't finish the job on a few people and they left witnesses. Right. Which helped take him down. Well, if you but, want something done right. Yeah, let's let you know. Um this this case, um what we used to study was an, an amazing article by the New Yorker. Um let's give that credit real quick because that's where yes. we got almost everything from this crime line. That's that's is such an extensive article that it takes forever to read. It you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. It really goes through the whole story of of uh Vito's life. Right. And so, yeah, it's called The Hitman's Tale by The New Yorker. It was written by Nadia Labi in uh, 2012. This article was put out. So that's what we used as a main study source, along with a couple of YouTube videos mm -hmm. and such. But yeah, amazing article. I agree. It's like a book. So it's in not depth. even really like I know. It, it is, it is yeah. a short book. I mean, it's a short book on this guy. If this guy would have lived... Yeah. If this guy would have lived to be 50 years old and he was still out, I mean, Jesus, it'd be, a, it'd be like a Stephen King novel. Right, it's, it's it's incredible. I mean, it, due to his short life before prison, it's the only reason that you could fit his story into a, into an article, I believe. Right, you know, I mean, it's so detailed, and he remembers a lot. Yeah. You can tell that he's he's quite intelligent. Oh yeah, he remembers a lot. Yeah. So by the age of twenty six, Vincent Smothers had killed at least a dozen people, most of them drug dealers. As he saw it, he was simply hastening the inevitable conclusion. He said, quote, when you, go, when you grow up in the hood, you learn if you sell drugs, you're going to end up in one of two things, jail or dead. 
Those are the results of that life. As for women who got in the line of fire, he reasoned that they benefited from the trade. Quote, when you flock to the ballers, you get what they get when it's your turn. But he never had set out to kill a woman, much less a civilian with no connection to the trade. Now, of course, what do you think about a lot of that? times we see with these women that were killed. <laughs> what do I think about? Oh, that were connected to the drug yeah. dealers? I mean, I don't think it's right to ever do... Uh, to I, I, what he was doing, you know, I get that he was justifying it, but that to me, that's that makes him no better. You know, you're you're killing criminals, but by doing so, you are the said you are also a criminal. You know, what right. I mean? you're but, out murdering people. But he's already accepted that. It's not like he thinks he's better than yeah. them. He's just like, hey, I'm just another player in the game, and then not this is my spot in the game. I'm an that assassin. is true. He did have some. He did have a level of understanding that what he was doing was also wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. But I do also agree with you roll with the dogs, you get the fleas as well. I mean, that's that's yeah. just a true statement. I know it sucks, and some people don't have a choice whether they roll with the dogs or not. I get that. But it's but the statement is true nonetheless. Yeah. So Vincent was born March 11th, 1981. He shares a birthday with Johnny Knoxville, one of my favorite people. Yes. Um, Anton, Anton Yelchin, which I also love, the late, great Anton Yelchin. Really good actor. He was in one of my favorite movies, Green Room as well oh, as Star Trek. Okay, and, I know who that is now. Yeah, he was really Oh, tragic really accident how the way he, he was, died, right? Yeah, accidentally killed by his own car in his driveway. It like, pinned him against oh his gate. Gosh. Really sad. That's like some Final um, Destination shit right there. It was. It was very weird. Mm. It was like a new vehicle, too. It was like a new SUV, and it, was the, it wasn't his fault. The vehicle, like, came out of... I think they sued the, the automaker for it. Wow. I think it was a Jeep, it was kind of a if defect. I'm not mistaken. I think it was a Jeep. Yeah, I think you're right. It was a Jeep. I think it was like a Wrangler or something. Yeah. But mm -hmm. That's awful. Yeah, and Vincent also shares a birthday with the Madden Brothers from... Uh, what's that band? Uh, the Madden what Brothers. What was that band? Yeah, Benji and Joel Madden from um, Good Charlotte. Oh, that's right. Wow, I didn't know. I had no idea who you're talking about when you said Madden Brothers. <laughs> I haven't heard. <laughs> yeah, it's good a, Charlotte and it's Benji in forever. It's a B side. They're not quite on the level of Johnny Knoxville and Anton Yelchin in my opinion. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, they were above the YouTubers, right? So yeah, Johnny Knoxville is, is easily one of my favorite people, like that you would ca categorize as a celebrity, I guess. Oh, no doubt. The dude's just so humble. He's so down to earth. And he's just he's, yeah he's just he's up he's, for anything. He'd be number one on the list of like celebrities to hang out with, right? Right, because you know you'd have a good time. You know, there's very few celebrities that I think of that I would actually approach in public. But I feel like if I saw Johnny Knoxville, I would have to. Right. You know, I, I feel like I feel like and most I think of he would and like, I think he would appreciate it too. I don't think he I don't think he uh, has gotten to the point where he's jaded or anything like that. No, it doesn't seem like it. It sure doesn't seem like no. it. But anyway, so uh, Vincent grew up in a tight knit family on Detroit's east side. The fifth of eight siblings, he was close to his father, Willie Frank, a man from Mississippi who preferred to be called Sonny even by his children. Sonny had met Vincent's mother, Mary, a 21-year-old nurse, a side of a Polish descent on, on a blind date in 1971. So this is a biracial relationship. Uh, Vincent's mother was white and his father was black. Mm -hmm. um, Mary wanted to get away from home, so when Sonny proposed, she said yes. At, and so this this was a biracial relationship when it was not really accepted to to be Especially in one. Especially not in Mississippi, like up, boy. <laughs> yeah, down south, and, and that's why yeah. they end up moving. Yeah. Um, at at first, Sonny's mother had misgivings about the relationship. Her and Sonny fled Mississippi after Emmett Till was killed for flirting with a white woman. And there's that's a that's a whole other case in its own. The Emmett Till the Emmett Till, uh, Till story mm -hmm. was very unfortunate, and uh, you can like get books about Emmett Till and stuff. But they, that scared them enough 
to flee the area of the South, being in a biracial relationship. They wanted to go to a more accepting place. This landed them in Detroit, Michigan, um, a much more diverse area at the time, I guess, and more accepting. Right. Well, anywhere up north was better, right? At least they're on the union side of the argument. That's Mm -hmm. that's how people, uh, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Justify it. Justify it, right, as well. But, I mean, there's just as as much racist up there as well. Uh, Oh, yeah. It's just a different... But I'm sure it was easier, and there was definitely... an area that they could fit in. And I don't think south of 8 Mile was quite as bad at that time. No. You know what no, I'm saying? That, it fell apart during Sonny's childhood, right. I think. You know, it, it got worse and worse. Right. Um, but, but after they landed in Detroit, Sonny scrambled to make a living. At times in his youth, he had reportedly uh, resorted to pimping. So his father's having a hard time making ends meet for the family. During Vincent's childhood, Sonny, Sonny made a modest living in home repairs. So he eventually turned to home repairs and, and brought in enough for the family. The young couple moved into a three-bedroom house on Vinton Street. When the Smothers family moved to the block, they were about 20 houses on Vin- on Vinton Street. Now there are only four standing. So as we mentioned, this this part of Detroit just kind of collapsed while Vincent was a child. Right. Um, for the past few decades, people with, mean- with means in Detroit have moved in one direction, north of 8 Mile, the road that divides the predominantly black city from the affluent, mostly white suburbs. Between 2000 and 2010, the population south of 8 Mile fell by a quarter to 713,000. 83% of those who remain were Afri- African American. So wow. keep in mind, this article that we got a lot of this information from was written in 2012 as well. So right. um, 2020, I don't know what the numbers look like, but you know, we we know that Chicago, I mean, uh, not Chicago, Detroit, especially that area, still is not doing too well. It kind of collapsed when the uh, Motor motor industry for right. uh, motor vehicles around two thousand America when that yeah. industry kind of um, sent it overseas and yeah that, that was a rough time so. for them and I think it still is it's, yeah, it still is no doubt a row of tires marks the edge of an overgrown field where the Smothers home once stood and a yellow handwritten sign in an empty lot across the street asks quote will the last person to leave Detroit kindly turn out the lights damn. It just gives you a feel for how the neighborhood ended up where where Vincent's mothers grew up. From a young age, Vincent helped his father learning plumbing, electrical work, painting. Quote, he was good at everything, his mother recalled. It was like he learned instantly, like he already knew what to do. So a very gifted young man, very smart, as we mentioned. He took took the family to the movies, uh, his father, and went fishing with the boys. Quote, my dad was very active in our lives, his younger brother Stephen said. We did a lot of things, gardening, ice skating, flying a kite. He wanted us to be better for ourselves. He didn't want he didn't want to show love, but he showed it in his own way. So, right, kind of a colder figure, but also seemingly a good father. Just definitely a disciplinarian, which we'll get into. Right, I feel like he didn't want to show weakness so much, but he did yeah. want to to make them tougher. That's old school and father shit, right? You know, <laughs> that's that old school seventies father shit. Like, yeah, just watch yeah. F is for family. <laughs> there's not one. Yeah. there's not one loving, affectionate father on there. <laughs> They're all like, "Put you through a yeah, fucking wall." Yeah, back in the day, they didn't even. <laughs> Back in the day, they wouldn't even be at the hospital when when their kids were born. You know, they'd be out golfing and like get a call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another one's born. Oh, okay, cool. Right. Call me at the clubhouse. Right. <laughs> Let me know if it's a boy or a girl. <laughs> right. Hit me up on my pager. Oh, they didn't have pagers then. No, right. Not in the seventies. Not yet. Yeah. It's a boy. Let's get a stogie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very different. Time. Very different um, times. Sunny. Sonny, the father, was strict. However, he expected the children to work hard and didn't abide smoking or drinking, though he'd done his fair share of both. 
and had also had used crack. Yeah, do as I crack. say, not as I do. Right. Precisely. I've done the the full gamut of drugs. Trust me, they're no good. I'm still doing them, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. But don't do it. Don't them. smoke don't crack do as he hits the crack pipe. Could you pass me that pipe, though? Thank you. I appreciate you. Right. <laughs> don't you hate those people that are literally, like literally smoking a cigarette and they're like, "Yeah, you shouldn't do this. This is bad. These things will kill you." Shut up. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Take your own advice. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is take your own advice or shut the hell up about it? You know. Right. Yeah. Or tell me how great it is. That's why you're doing yeah. it. You, you obviously appreciate it. Well, you look a lot wiser when you when you say anything over a cigarette. I mean, you know, right, and you do you, that. You take a the, puff, you, you blow out, and then you just gaze off and you say something. You could say the dumbest shit in the world, but you you look like a philosopher, and that's that's what really draws people to it. I really do, and it's something to right. do. Take a long drag, yeah. and you really turkeys really look like they should fly. Yeah. And you just kind of look yeah. off in the distance. Exactly. <laughs> like wow, I never thought of that before. This guy's on to something. <laughs> right. So uh, as we talked about Sonny being a disciplinarian, he disciplined his kids with switches, extension cords, or plastic rods used in Venetian blinds. Twice he cut off the ponytail of his uh, Vincent's younger sister, Keila, Kelia, hmm. um, yeah. as punishment. The second time, his aim was off when trying to cut off her ponytail, and he sliced her into her scalp. Okay, what was he using so to cut her is... ponytail off, dude? That's what I need to know. You know, I don't Why know. Don't, scissors or a knife, I, I suppose. I would say a knife. If you slice somebody's scalp, yeah, would, it's really hard to slice someone's scalp with scissors. You right. ever slice someone's scalp with scissors before? I mean, bar being a hair cutter. Well, I've never really know. cut anyone's ponytail off, to be fair. No. And I imagine a kid, you know, a little girl, when you're trying to do that, she might be thrashing around. So, yeah, maybe. I don't know. But that is, that's, to that's me, that's, that, I mean, he's obviously well over the line of abuse at this point. And it's well, it's well beyond just normal discipline. Discipline, well, you know, cutting hair for you're punishment. Kids with that's, extension cords and you're cutting off ponytails. Yeah, cutting hair for punishment or degrading your child in any way for punishment, yes. I think is too, like, to me, that was the part that was hardest to read was cutting off a little girl's ponytail. It's just so traumatizing. Especially you know? at that age, because, to kids, their hair is everything. They love their hair. They do. Like, yeah. whatever they want to do with it. Especially a little girl. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like kids in general. I feel like kids... I feel like I didn't really give a shit about my hair when didn't? I was little, though. Man, yeah, I, I feel like care. when I was younger, I would say... I had a mullet for a while. I would say, like, sub-10. Well, yeah, because you got to do what you wanted with your hair, though, right? I don't think so. I think my dad just gave me a mullet. Because oh. I think he had a mullet back in the day. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. You know, had a cool. At least you had a... She had a uh, topical hairstyle, you know, back then. It looked pretty sick, though. My kindergarten picture, man. I got the long, flowing, curly hair in the back. Yeah. You know, party in the front or party in the back and the business. Oh, in the okay. Front. I, got, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> See, I just wanted to do what I wanted with my hair when I was a kid, and my and my mom wouldn't let me, and it like it would piss me off. You know, I'd like want to you grow know, my hair out or something, skater. and she wouldn't. She wouldn't let me. She would always, you know, because she was afraid of how it was going to reflect on her. Of course, and I knew that as a child. Oh yeah. And that's, when you go to church and you got a funky hair, right? Do. And that's what pissed me off. That's why like, with my kids, mm. you know, if you want your hair cut, you get it cut. If you don't, you don't. I don't give a shit. If you're tripping over it, that's yeah. your problem. If you don't want it cut, whatever. I, I guess I started caring when I was about middle school. I do remember when I was a skater, I, I like dyed my hair black. Yeah. Or at least partially black. Right. You know? Right. So I, I started caring around that. Oh, yeah. But. That's skate, skater, punk, emo, whole scene. Everybody was mm -hmm. dyeing their hair black and letting it grow. baggy Jinko jeans. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't even see your shoes. So baggy, like parachute <laughs> pants, dude. You couldn't even see. Oh, my God. They're all worn out at the bottom. scrawny little kid. Scraping the... This is a scrawny little kid, and my pants were big enough to fit like a 300-pound man. Right. But then your shirt's tight. Makes no sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you look like an like a upside down cone or something. Like you don't right. even look right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, those were the days. Yeah. Uh, so um, Vincent's mother, Mary, tried to protect the kids, but she also feared Sonny, who beat her frequently as well. Quote, they say you should take your kids and go, but I couldn't do that, Mary said. I had nowhere to go. Right, they just moved to They're, Detroit, too. I mean, she didn't even know anybody. True. Where is she going to go? There's, there wasn't a, much of a support right. system in, a, in an area that was on the decline like right. that. You know, And most of her family, who had probably um, abandoned her because of her relationship... Most likely. I'm not saying that for sure, but I'm just saying most of her family back in Mississippi probably was like, well, you're getting what you deserve. You know what I mean? Right. They, I'm sure mm-hmm. they weren't very supportive. So she, she, Yeah, they had moved away from their families. Right. So, yeah, they couldn't get much support there or help. Exactly. She had nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, and in 1989, Vincent's brother, Nishan, then 15, ran away, and the police found him wandering the streets. After extensive bruising was discovered on him, he was taken into protective custody. Sonny refused to allow Vincent and his older brother, Dion, to be examined, and they, too, became wards of the state. Vincent, then eight, was desperate to go home. Quote, me and my father were extremely close. He said, children gravitate towards authority, and me the, and to me, the better parent was my father. So, as we mentioned, he he tended to like the, the discipline that was being doled out in the home. Right. I think that's kind of rare, but I think he's a rare dude in general. I don't think the other siblings appreciated it too well, much, but he... Maybe because he didn't get beat as much because he was more in line. I was about to I say. Know. I was about to say he liked it because he could have been the father's kiss ass. Right, you know? it worked for him. He may have been the favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, he helped his father, and like I said, the structure and the discipline worked for him because he liked his father. So he, if he loved his father and liked his father, he wanted to please him. So he probably behaved better. Like you're saying, it wasn't right. he wasn't getting this stuff dished out to him. So the discipline mm-hmm. seemed easier. Yep. Yeah. At 12, Vincent was allowed to return home, and he earned a spot at one of the city's top magnet schools. But it was far from home and parental oversight, and he often skipped class. A year later, the family home burned in a wood stove accident. Vincent helped to rebuild it and began attending nearby Charles F. Ketterning Senior High School, um, walking back and forth with his sister, Kalia, who was a year younger. He was an honor student with high marks in Spanish and biology, he had five close friends who also came from stable homes, a rarity in a neighborhood where many children didn't know who their father was. He said, quote, we were like the good kids. Bad kids started stealing cars at 12 or 13, doing weed, shooting at people. We came from solid backgrounds, and that kept us from those things. If you came home smelling like weed smoke, you had some explaining to do. <laughs> so he was in a little group of friends that, you know, were, as he said, the good kids. Right. At the time, comparatively, I still think, I mean, you hear – that later on that he was also doing some like shoplifting and things like that but in this area that's so mild compared to what all the other kids his age were doing right right they were out doing doing auto theft and burglaries and exactly. stuff exactly because there was no real other options and that's what you saw all around and it's still a problem as we've seen in many communities around this country where this is so much poverty and and like minimal options as to what you could do positive right you don't have it a takes choice. a real special person to make it out of that yeah it does so Vincent had a car when he was a teenager, a red Chevy pickup, and the friends played basketball almost every day. There was not a park we wouldn't take over, he said. He took pride in his discipline. Growing up, he cleaned the toilets at home, and at his later jobs, he always arrived early and worked hard. But in the late 90s, the family started to flounder. Sonny received a diagnosis of a rare type of lymphoma, and Vincent's brother, Dion, stopped attending school and began selling drugs. Uh, the, the dad, Sonny, kicked him out. Around Christmas of 1997, tragedy would strike again after Dion, the brother, burglared a house in the neighborhood, in the neighborhood he lived in. Oh. Um, the man who lived next door, oh. Grady, Grady Hudson, 
Yeah. What were you saying? It's just why are you going to pick the house next door, Dion? No, it's not not next door to him, but it's a it's a house in their neighborhood. And the man that lived next door to the house that he burglared witnessed him oh, leaving. Oh, okay. The way and that recognized the, him. Okay. The way that and I had said, read and he it, threatened Dion. Yeah, I thought it was a next door. No, not his next door neighbor. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, he robs this house in his neighborhood, and the neighbor next door to the home that was robbed, great, it was a man named Grady Hudson. He was close to the owner, the house's owner, and he threatened Dion, said, quote, I'm going to whoop you every time I see you. Sure enough, each time he spotted Dion after that, he chased him. <laughs> One evening, yeah, it's kind of funny now, but yeah. it gets real not funny soon, as you know. Yeah, right, right. On the That's evening right. of the next <laughs> April, Hudson hosted a barbecue, and around sunset, Dion and a friend pulled up in a white van. Hudson spotted Dion as he went inside, and after a tense encounter with his friend, pulled two revolvers out of the pocket of his hoodie. When Dion emerged, Hudson glared at him and raised a gun. As Dion scrambled into the van, Hudson fired, and he heard a scream. Unfortunately, Kalia had followed Dion out to say goodbye. You know, the, the sister right. of Dion and Vincent as well came out to say goodbye. She had been, unfortunately, shot in the, in the mayhem. She fell, clutching her stomach. Twelve hours later, she died at the hospital, the same hospital where her and Vincent's father was being treated for cancer. Sonny would die eight months later as well. Hudson was sentenced to 40 to 60 years in prison for second-degree murder. This and dude must have really is... loved his neighbor. That's, that's the only thing I could think of. When I read I know, this, right? I'm like... Or he just, he just had some hate in his heart or... and Yeah, and he I found something to focus it on. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, too. That's true, too. He could be like, well, this is my purpose. God damn it, I'm going to protect this damn neighborhood if it's the last thing I right, do. Right, there's a lot of those people out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Vincent, uh, this tragedy struck and his father dying from cancer and then also his sister being tragically murdered, you know, it, for something that his brother had done. Yeah. So it was very, very uh, tough time, and it kind of resulted in him um, stopping going to school. He drops out, and his grades slid to... Uh, well, he stopped going to school and his grades slid to C's and D's and F's because he had such high grades before leaving school that they just started to, to plummet after that. Right. He'd go on to commit petty crimes before, like stealing food from a grocery store, but now his infractions turned serious. He missed graduation day because he'd spend the night in jail for stealing a car. He considered becoming a Marine, but instead he got a job making air conditioning and heating ducts while he continued his criminal exploits. After two more arrests for stealing cars, he was imprisoned for a year and a half, and when he was released, he returned to his job, working his way up to foreman and earning $16 an hour. Now, he was a model employee good money for when, 2003. He, when he did work, as we mentioned. Yeah, or no doubt. Yeah, that was good money, especially in a, an impoverished area. That's yeah. like baller status, yeah. making 16 bucks yeah, an hour. Yeah, he's doing good. Yeah, and it, it was because he, he like said that when he was at, at work for this AC company, he would he would try to set an example. Like he would bust out work by lunchtime that other people couldn't do in a full day. You know, he was that, that guy. Right. Um, and unfortunately in 2003, he suffered an accident at this job. His left hand, which he favors got caught in a machine that flattened steel and he lost all mobility in the fingers, but the thumb and index, the two he needed to fire a gun. How crazy that is crazy. Is that it's almost this like such destiny, a movie, right? This whole story. He's like, mm. It's just kind right. of weird. I only got these two fingers. <laughs> right. Might as well put them to use. Crazy. Mm. It's this, this story is just such a movie to me. It really is. So, yeah, he's still got the two fingers he needs to, to use a weapon. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about Detroit. It was once a proud, industrious city that turned out much of America's vehicles. However, at the turn of the century, the dominant business in many parts of town was drugs. 
Vincent had a puritanical streak. He didn't smoke, he didn't take drugs, and didn't drink ex to excess. And he mostly steered clear of the trade, but he wasn't averse to robbing the places where drugs were sold. Yeah. So he, he wasn't a drug but dealer. Like, he wasn't involved in it other than robbing the drug dealers. Right, but like we said, he didn't count that as as bad. Like, that didn't hurt him because he felt like these people are bad people too. Like, they're, you mm. know what I mean? They're fair game. They're in the trade. He's like a, a gangster's Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah, kind of, in a way. He just keeps all the proceeds for himself, though. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> He's not giving it back to the community. No. Um, now a man, Vincent was six foot one with caramel-colored skin and wavy black hair. He had 16 tattoos on his upper body. Among them are three in the memory of loved ones. His nickname, Vito, emblazoned in red on his back, a rebellious, uh, a rebus that spells out, I never he hesitate, and in gothic letters, lost soul. Okay. So, it's quite a collection there, but nothing, yeah. but nothing gang related. It was all just personal stuff yeah. to him. It wasn't, uh, right. yeah, he had no affiliations in the streets. Right, he was his own man. That's. I would say Lost Soul is pretty accurate for where he was at at this time. Yeah, he had a lot of energy and he didn't know where to direct it, and there wasn't many options. I feel like that was probably his his newest one, or maybe I never hesitate. That could be his newest one as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's <laughs> that's a very aptly for him as well. Yeah, that's very relevant. Yeah. Um, he later claimed that he, tur he turned to crime because he became callous after losing two people closest to him, his, his father and his sister. Sonny's death left him with little guidance in a difficult environment. Vincent and his friends were ambitious and talented. They wanted to get ahead. A crime, And crime seemed to be the fastest ticket, which, unfortunately, it was. I mean, that's the fastest ticket if you are. Yeah. If you are the way that uh, Vincent was. Right. Um, in, ten, in one 10-minute robbery, Vincent made $100,000, the equivalent of three years' salary from his day job. So when you, when you hit, hit and rob these big-time drug dealers, they, they're keeping a shitload of cash on them because they can't put that money in the bank. Right. You know? So Man. sometimes it's easy pickings if you're as good at it as Vince was. Right. Well, he did plan. He was, like, he was intelligent, and he used this intelligence to, to commit yeah. these crimes. That was my favorite part. And he was careful. That was my favorite part in studying this was hearing hearing the the prep work that he put into it and the, the surveillance and like the different uh, means of kind of making himself seem um, seem kind of benign. Yeah. Not really right. like, like a, not a dangerous a figure. Yeah. Like the drug dealer, he kind of lulled them to sleep, the drug dealers. He would kind of be around walking a dog or playing with basketball with some kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. And all the while he was trying to find weaknesses of the drug dealer that he was going right. to kill. It's pretty sneaky, man. He knew, and he never walked like a big, you know, ferocious dog. Oh yeah, he, he also looked walked a yeah, little he, dog. Yeah, he wasn't jack. He didn't look like uh, Tookie. Let's just put it right. <laughs> he wasn't Tookie walking a pit bull. <laughs> he was just like right. he, he was just like a skinny, <laughs> a skinny, uh, you know, light skinned guy walking a poodle or something. It was a small dog. Right. It was like a. I remember I, it yeah. was like ten pounds or something. Yeah, we'll get into that. We have it in the crowd. Okay, cool. So the murder for hire jobs all started in 2005 when one of Vincent's basketball buddies introduced him to Leroy Payne, a laid-back black man in his 30s who liked to shoot dice in high-stake uh, street games. Payne worked for Delano Thomas, a dealer on the east side who had a predilection for flashy accessories, luxury SUVs with neon headlights and diamonds on his watch. Delano, in turn, worked for somebody who's described as a real as real heavy. Adaris Mazio Black, one of the biggest drug dealers and suppliers in Detroit. One day while Vincent was chatting with Payne and some other men, someone asked, quote, how much would you ask to kill someone for? Mm. So he's he's made an acquaintance with someone who's connected to someone who's connected to someone, and it just keeps going up. Right. Um, and he, you know, he never really thought about 
doing contract killing, but you know the question was asked, and it didn't take long. Uh, didn't take the question that seriously. He answered it and said, "Quote: I looked into how it would do, how I would do it, and gave a price, not thinking it would be agreed to." He said. However, Payne agreed and met his price, and a couple of months later, Vincent walked up to his first victim and shot him in the head. Dang. He said 15, main, 15 minutes later, he was home and said, quote, emotionally, it didn't affect me. I wasn't like, wow, I just killed someone. It didn't really, didn't seem to bother him at all because I think, as we mentioned, his view of the drug dealers is that's kind of what was inevitably going to happen anyway. We see that later he kills someone that wasn't a drug dealer, that was an innocent person, and that really affected him right. it, yeah, in a different it, way. That's, I think it was partly that, and partly it was a job. You know, he wanted to make yeah. it at this time, and he's still calloused at this time. He's still probably upset uh-huh. about his father's death, and you know, and it took months before he killed this guy. So there was a lot of surveillance, probably a lot of watching him, a lot of stalking, a lot of thinking about it. I think he was over yeah. it by the time he shot him. He's like, well, that's that's what I prepared for. That's that. That's yeah, yeah. That's the whole point of all this work. So, yep. And as far as uh, payment, Vincent expected pain to short him. He said, quote, I'm still doing my day job. I'm thinking even if they want me to do it again, if all my money isn't there, I won't do it again. Right. However, after the hit, Payne met him and handed over a shoebox. All the money was there. And it wasn't sure. It wasn't um, really stated exactly how much that first hit paid, but his hits typically paid anywhere from five to 20,000. So it's not that much if you think about it. If you someone tried to pay you right now to do it, but in you know in a really impoverished area in the early two thousands, uh-huh. that's good money for something that you know pain does in a matter of minutes. Obviously, there's the surveillance side of it, and there's some prep work that has to be done. Right. But the actual work itself doesn't take any. I would time. say the first hit was probably somewhere around five thousand because you always in you yeah. always the first time you do something for somebody, I feel like you always underestimate it. I feel like when people. Right ask me about projects, even if it's just like something around their house or whatever, I always end up undervaluating it. I'm like, man, this took a lot more time and a lot more resources than what I thought, you know? More more cost and materials yes. and everything else. Yeah. So I would say the first more trips to Home Depot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's why the first the first hit probably was around five thousand. And that's probably why yeah. the uh the dealer agreed to it pain you know i mean he was like right. uh He's like ooh, that's it yeah absolutely uh you, it's like can we get a four for, four for one deal here we just go ahead <laughs> right. and, uh, how can about i just give on? you 20 and i'll just give you a list of people uh i need knocked right. off <laughs> right can we do can we deal in bulk right, <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly yeah so the following year vincent's bosses asked him to take a three dollar an hour pay cut at the day job that he had you know doing ac unit said, uh, ac you. ducks and stuff yeah, and he's like, dude, I can make more in one evening pulling the trigger than I can, especially after you cut my pay to 13 bucks an hour. So he quit yeah. and struggled to find a comparable job. He said it's hard to find a job when you're a felon. Um, he needed money, and his mind started playing tricks, according to his friend at the time, who later said this quote, killing became his steady line of work. So mm-hmm. he kind of ran out of options. Um, the better he got at it, the more intriguing and enticing it became to him. It was a mental exercise for him, the homework, the plotting, the deed of the murder itself. For most assignments, he became he gave uh, Payne, the guy that was, uh, you know, basically dealing with Vincent on these murders and, and giving him the assignment, right. said that uh, Payne would give him the target street names and address along with a description of the target and his vehicle. So that's what he had to go on for... Um, the start of his, it's almost like a, like an investigation in a sense, yeah. you know, trying to figure out how to kill this guy the easiest. Right. Um, 
So the address was a starting point. Dealers rarely stayed at the location um, of their address, however, for long. They also kept their guard up, typically emerging from their cars and their homes with a gun at the ready. Vincent looked for a momentary moment of vulnerability. He said, quote, when you drive up to your house and you turn your car off, you look around, make sure nobody is around, pull your door handle, push the door open with your foot and lean, out, lean over to grab whatever is sitting in the passenger seat. Mm-hmm. That was his moment. If someone Vincent was following had stopped at McDonald's on the way home, he would inevitably reach for the bag of food on the way out of the car. That moment you lean over, that's the moment you get killed. Damn. Very interesting. That is that's interesting. very true. Like you pull up and you look around and if you don't see anybody, then you feel like you're, you know, it's safe to kind of let your guard down for a second to grab whatever out of the car. And that's when he would get you. Right. I feel like we've all had that moment where we're sitting in a car though. And then someone like comes up and knocks on the window, you know, whether it be someone mm-hmm. in a parking lot or a friend that sneaks up in you or whatever, like you're, you're very vulnerable in a car, even though you have all those mirrors yeah. and stuff. Um, no doubt. Especially, especially nowadays with phones. I mean, it's so easy yeah. to sneak up on someone. They're sitting in their sitting in their passenger side, looking at their phone. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it, and even if their guard is up, and you know they're a drug dealer that is expecting someone to try and kill right. them, like the angles that you have being outside of a vehicle versus being inside to actually shoot back. Right. You know, if you just like come up behind their passenger door, right, and uh, how are they going to turn and be able to shoot accurately? Whereas you're standing and you got a full view of them, you can just unload on them. Exactly. So, yeah, being in a car makes you very vulnerable. No doubt. Um, so in the t- summer of 2006, Vincent was hired to kill a dealer named Adrian A.D. Thornton, who had been fu- feuding with Payne's boss, Delano Thomas. In 2000, Delano's crew allegedly stole some marijuana from A.D. and shot him and his girlfriend in retaliation. A.D. and his brother killed one of Delano's people. Now word went around that Delano had put a $50,000 bounty on A.D. and a similar one on his best friend, Motorhead. Weeks earlier, Vincent had killed another of A.D.'s friends, catching him as he smoked a cigarette on his porch. A.D. was harder to trap. He switched cars frequently and sometimes disguised himself with a wig. So these are, this mm. is a big contract here. He's, if he can kill A.D. and Motorhead, you're looking at maybe $100,000 for one night's work. Oof. And those guys were always together as well. Vincent or A.D. and Motorhead were usually together, so it could be just if you do it right, you kill them both at once. Right. Um, Vincent determined that he spent most of his time at a drug house and began to conduct surveillance. He said, quote, in the hood, you can't pull up on the block and sit in the car. People think you're either police or you shouldn't be there. You've got to be able to get close without them suspecting you of anything. So what he did was join in on pickup games at a basketball hoop next door where the local kids played. So, and as we mentioned, he, he wasn't, he didn't look like a hitman necessarily. He, you know, he was thin framed mm-hmm. didn't, didn't have much muscle on. And, and, uh, and a lot of times he would show up with a little dog and he just kind of made it intention, his intent to look inconspicuous as possible. Right. Um, it worked well. On stakeouts, Vincent put out, go ahead. I was going to say it worked really well for him. He, he cause he, and he had a, oh, he had a good smile sure. about him too, you know, and yeah. his voice wasn't very domineering. Like he oh, just yeah. seemed, yeah. he just seemed like a normal guy. Like when you hear him on the phone and like when he's giving this testimony to an officer as a YouTube video with like a super long testimony on there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he just doesn't sound it. Just the way he talks about it. It's so casual. You could tell it was just yep. work for him. It was just work. That makes him so scary. Yes. You know? Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> makes you question everybody you're around. You're like, man, this guy doesn't look like it, but neither did Vincent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so on stakeouts, Vincent put out a harmless vibe. He had a ready smile, a frame that looks too skinny to hold muscle, and a voice that tends to squeak when he's amused. He sometimes wore suits and in the suburbs brought along his dog, a 10-pound Maltese poodle mix. Perfect choice. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Um, he said, quote, if you're out at three in the morning walking a dog that fits most women's purses, people drive right by you. Um, he said, when he was tailing AD, he got as close as possible. At a liquor store near the drug house, he once held the door for Motorhead. He said, quote, the closer you are to a person, the more they can't tell, or the more they can the more you can tell their reactions, their fear level, people are afraid are who who are afraid are dangerous. Mm-hmm. Motorhead barely noticed Vincent. He said he quote looked at me as though I was a peon, like I wasn't a threat to him. That's a good thing. No doubt. So he holds the door at this liquor store for the guy he's gonna kill, and the guy doesn't give him a second thought, and he's like, All right, you're easy money. Yeah. Wow. He's right there under their nose. They don't it's, I'm yep. just surprised that some of them didn't pick up on it, but I guess you know, I mean, I just feel like it'd be weird. Be like, didn't I see that guy walking the dog this morning and at the basketball courts? <laughs> and he held the door for me at the liquor store? Right. Why is it that this guy is everywhere yeah, I am? that's kind of you know, strange. And he won't even look at me. But maybe he spread it out enough, you so know. It's, it's not one like day it, in all August, this happened Vincent in one was day. Watching, I'm sure AD these were emerged spread from out. The house, laughing and talking with Motorhead. You know, I mean, if he, in the street, a group of kids were heading for the basketball hoop, and Motorhead barely noticed a tall, light-skinned man among them. As Motorhead jumped off the porch, he took several bullets to the stomach, two to his head and one through his arm. A.D. ran for his white truck parked 10 yards away where his girlfriend was strapping their baby into a car seat. He was dead before he could get there. Damn. So he he, take, he takes his chance on the hit here, and he's got the jump on him. He takes down Motorhead. Now remember, Motorhead takes down took AD. two bullets to the yeah. head. Remember this. Yes. Yeah. He, he did the double tap rule. He shot Motorhead several times, including two shots to the head. Yeah. Payne, Payne paid him the next day before either man learned that Motorhead had survived. What the hell? He, uh, <laughs> Vincent said, quote, I saw Motorhead's brains. I couldn't believe when I heard he was alive. That guy. I guess that's why you call him Motorhead, huh? He's got a blockhead. Yeah, apparently. He's got, yeah, he's got a fucking motor block <laughs> like for a, a head. He's got like a, a, a big block, 454 yeah, in there. You just can't <laughs> seriously. Penetrate. That bitch ain't even leaking oil. Yeah. Right. Wow. Amazing. And that was part of the problem is is sometimes like if you don't really he he learned to go overboard with his killings uh, following this because it's just amazing what some people you saw Fifty Cent how many he survived how many yeah got shot like nine, nine times, times he got shot time. in the yeah. face yep crazy Smothers said that Payne wanted to make sure he didn't repeat the mistake quote that's why the other scenes needed to be so gruesome after that and by the end of two thousand six Vincent met met Cecily Cecily. How do you Probably pronounce Cecily. her name, you think? Cecily. Cecily? Yeah. All right, we'll go with that. So he meets a girl named Cecily, a pretty 22-year-old with a love for high heels. The first time they hung out, he told her what he did for a living, and she didn't believe him. That's amazing to me that he just goes ahead and tells her oh, on know. the first date that he's a hitman. Nah, you don't even know her. It's a big risk, right? They must have really connected for him to feel that comfortable Seriously. that quickly. Or he just he also seemed nonchalant about it. Like, he did kind of brag about it to people. Yeah. Almost like – I think he kind of – bought into the idea that people just wouldn't believe him the same reason that the drug dealers felt comfortable when he was around because he just seemed like such a non-threat also i think he felt pretty good about his his victim selection like i said earlier and then also he felt like he covered his tracks pretty good yeah he didn't touch anything most of these people he killed outside and so if there were no witnesses which i'm sure he covered his face and whatnot but if there were no witnesses you really had nothing other than bullet casings but i'm sure he used a popular caliber uh handgun as well so I don't know that he covered his face. I, th- I think like when he killed uh, or when he killed AD and he shot uh, Motorhead, he was in a crowd of kids playing basketball or whatever. So he was blending in with them. But I think a big part of it is, as you see in uh, inner cities and you see in lower income areas and with, with tons of crime, people don't want to be the rat. They're, they're afraid of you them becoming the target next. Right. You know? So I think they're just like 
they're just they just go home and they don't if the cops come knocking they say they didn't see anything you know right. see that very often yep. so and but i think that was one of the few times where he did just hit broadly in front of you know in daylight around other people most of the time it, he was more assassin like right so i got you there wouldn't be witnesses in most cases right so yeah he meets he meets uh, cecily and tells her what he does and by the time um by the time she finally believed that that was his job, they were in love already. In three months, they were engaged. They went on to movie. They went out to the movies and restaurants, but more often they stayed home, cooking elaborate meals and bonding over housework. Vincent liked that she kept things clean. He moved with uh, Cecily to a small row house in Shelby Township, a suburb north of Detroit, and they began to decorate, buying new furniture and a big flat screen TV. While Vincent uh, settled into his domestic life, however, the police were tracking down his employers so that they were they were higher up the ladder with the guys that had levels of separation between him and them. It, the higher up guys like uh, um, the big boss, Black, I don't think he even knew Vincent, who what his name was or anything like that. He just – he was giving orders to the guy below him. That guy was giving orders below right. him, and then eventually it would get to Vincent. Right. Yeah, they didn't. So in March of 2007, a special agent with the Wisconsin Department of Justice unlocked the padlock of a storage unit in Milwaukee, which contained a single blue plastic bin. He opened the lid and found a shrink wrapped wads of bills totaling 1.3 million. million. The unit's owner admitted that he'd stolen the money from drug dealers and outlined an an elaborate scheme. Twice a month, two tour buses traveled from Chicago to Detroit to be loaded with money and went on to Tucson, where the money was exchanged for marijuana. If the police stopped the buses, the drivers and passengers were paid to say that they were setting up for a band in Las Vegas. <laughs> the buses were traced to Delano's boss, uh, Adaris Mazio Black, who fled to Tucson. Uh, quote, Black became obsessed with concealing his identity, said J. Michael Buckley, the assistant U- turn, uh, U.S. attorney in Detroit who prosecuted him. He said, quote, he had multiple aliases, surgically altered his fingerprints and face, those are the three ways that law enforcement identify people, and he changed all of them. That is crazy. Damn. Um, the buses were searched in April of 2007, and a federal complaint against uh, identified two people who had cooperated with the investigation as bus drivers. The next month, Vincent said Payne hired him to kill the two bus drivers from Chicago. Ooh. Oh, boy. Shit. So the guys that were driving this money. Yeah, they should have kept their mouths shut. Yeah, they ratted, and now they've become the next target. Um, from the big bosses that's now going to trickle, trickle down to the hitman, who is Vincent. Delano made a plan to summon the drivers to a park in Detroit, but Vincent thought the area was too crowded, so he had the men ordered to a spot around the corner. A few blocks from the meeting place, his car broke down. Vincent's car breaks is, down, and he continued so on crazy, foot. Crazy part of the story. Yeah, oh, my so, God. So the plan falls apart, but it doesn't matter to Vincent. He's an ice-cold killer, yeah. so... His car breaks down. He just continues on foot, calling Payne to tell him that he would need a ride. While still on the phone uh, with his boss telling him he needed a ride, he saw the drivers who had pulled their car over to the side of the road. One of them, an elderly black man, was leaning over the open hood, and Vincent, holding his phone to to his ear, walked up and asked if he needed help. Nah, young fellow, the man replied. Vincent took out his pistol and, without hanging up the phone, shot him in the head and then shot the passenger through the windshield. As he walked away, he told Payne that he was ready to be picked up. <laughs> Holy shit. You talk about a movie scene. That is a straight-up right. movie scene. Yes. While he's talking to him, he's like, I can just picture him walking down the street. You know what? Cancel that ride. You know what? No, actually, come on with the ride, but uh, I'm just going to need a ride home. Yeah, I see him. Yeah, they're right, right. here. No, they're right. <laughs> yeah, no, one of them is yeah. dead. Yeah, hold on. <laughs> yeah, 
They're they're both the no, they're good. Yeah, come pick me up right here at the corner. <laughs> I like my money, and uh, I'll take it in twenties, right. um, not large bills. Please. Right, much harder to track. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Man. So five months later, federal agents traced Black to California and arrested him. He was later convicted of tr- drug trafficking. And the feds knew that Black was at the top of Detroit's drug hierarchy and that Delano was his right-hand man. Delano was the enforcer dealing with payments. Everything Delano did was to make sure nobody double-crossed Black. The police didn't know who Vincent Smothers was, but they were only two steps away at this point. Um, In the meantime, Vincent was successful for so long as a hitman due to his discipline. When a crew was robbing a dope house, he was the first inside. He said, quote, I know I'll look around every corner. I'm going to have my own back. Before carrying out a hit, he did his homework. But as the money flowed in, he began relying on others and making costly mistakes. In the summer of 2007, he was hired to kill a dealer named Pooch. He brought an accomplice, and the hit went awry. Pooch was killed, but two, two women were shot in the head, the teenage mother of Pooch's child and a friend of hers, who ended up surviving. Mm. So not only did they end up killing two innocent women, um, but also, well, they tried to, and one of them ended up surviving. So yet again, a situation where a person is just a survivor somehow, right. even though you know they get shot in the head or whatever, they end up living. Vincent faulted his accomplice for shooting the women and for leaving the job half-finished. Quote, the police don't care about drug dealers, he said, but you kill and maim two 18-year-old girls with an infant, children, with an infant child, that don't make sense. Yeah. So he knows. He knows. Like we like we mentioned, they don't really care too much when a drug dealer's murdered. They had the same opinion that Vincent had, where it's like, "What did you think was going to happen? That's inevitable." Right. I'm so surprised he even brought in a compass, someone who wasn't there right. for the stakeouts, who wasn't there, and, and maybe mm-hmm. it was their first time. It's like, why would you bring somebody for such a high up drug dealer, knowing that there may be other people around? I think it was just just yeah. a miscalculation. I don't know. Maybe maybe his boss or the person hiring him, you know, Delano or whoever, said, "Take this guy with you." Maybe or, they wanted, uh, you know, or maybe a backup, a guy, a guy that knew how to do it as well in case something happened to Vincent. They wanted a guy with some experience, right? Or maybe, yeah, that's a great point. Or maybe uh, money was flowing in so good that Vincent wanted to get himself an employee. So when people would come for hits, he would have foot soldiers yeah, so like to actually go do the hits. And then they would take a yeah. cut, and then he would take a cut, and then he could eventually just get paid for managing these hits, and he could stay at home with his new girlfriend and in their new place, yeah. and maybe start a family. You know, that's a scary proposition, though. You train people to be hitmen, and then you're their boss. You know, how do you ever really feel comfortable? Like, what if they decide just to cut out the middleman and take the full cut for themselves? What if they decide to just start? They don't need me. You know, I'm telling them who to hit and whatnot. But if they make a connection where they can get contracts, yeah. On their own, they're going to come for me. Well, now. that would be understood that they could uh, just well that they could just go get the contracts on their own. They would just not tell you, yeah. but then they might be afraid that right. you're going to exactly. kill them. Exactly. Yeah. It's <laughs> or vice versa. It's just a scary. It's just not worth it, man. That, when you're dealing with multiple hitmen, that lifestyle. Like, we both know how to kill really well. Listen, that lifestyle. I know it can be rewarding and shit, but I feel like it's just not worth it because you never get to rest. Hell can no. you imagine the anxiety Hell them no. dudes go through? Especially once you have a, a wife and yes. children, you know what I mean? Like now he's got stuff to lose. Like I felt like before it was probably way less nerve wracking, but once you have that, right, that's your weakness at that point. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, yeah, if you're alone and you got nothing to live for and you're like, okay, but even, even living alone and having this whole system, still the anxiety and the nerves must be mm-hmm. running wild all the time. Even if you are a cold calculated killer, even if you're... You're not afraid to die. I, I still feel like you're constantly 
looking around your back, you can never really plan for the future. You don't know how long you're going to be around, you know? And you sure as hell can't have any loved ones in your life, which is, that itself is tough. I mean, and you're making all this money, (laughs) you know, you got all these lavish things, but you have no one to share them with. And then when you do, you're paranoid someone's going to kill them. Yeah, that's where he screwed up. I think he... I don't think he really cared about life much when, early on when he was a hitman before he met uh, Cecily. But he was already in it, though, right? You see what I'm saying? He, he was yeah, he was in it. it because I mean, because it was perfect for someone like him, where he didn't really care if he lived or died. It was just like I think he got off on the rush of, of you know, finding weaknesses in these guys and then taking them out. Like I think he he liked it, and he also thought like whatever if they kill me, that's it is what it is. But now, like we said, he has something to lose, so it's different. There's more stakes in the game for him. Absolutely. Now. Um, Vincent took care not to target bystanders. He didn't believe in killing for free, but his collateral damage was mounting. And at the end of the summer, he spent a month on Runyon Street stalk, uh, staking out the home of a marijuana dealer named Michael Robinson and concealing his intentions by playing baseball in the street with a friend, Ernest Davis. Late in the evening on September 17th, Robinson was sitting in his living room with a neighbor, Valerie Glover, and her three other friends. Big Mike, as he was known, had a day job working for the city and liked to cook and entertain. He had invited his guests over that night to watch the Redskins-Eagle game. So this this big drug dealer who he's paid to kill is, is hosting a little party. This is kind of... And this is when, when... I heard about this, I was like, this is kind of fucked up. This dude's just a, a pot dealer, you know? Yeah, and also he's hosting a party filled with innocent people. Like, why is it, why is this why? the time you choose to make I your did move? not or understand did he not this. realize... I mean, maybe he screwed up in a surveillance and he thought that Michael Robinson would be home alone. And he's, you know, by the time he was, he ended up getting discovered on the patio, as we'll get into. And then he was kind of forced to make a move, but maybe he would have seen the party going on and left otherwise. Yeah. I don't know. I'd like to think that was the deal. So around 11.25 p.m. during the fourth quarter of the Eagles-Redskins game, Vincent began to conduct recon, wearing dark clothing and a ski mask and carrying an AK-47. He went up on the porch and approached the storm door to test if it was locked, thinking that he wouldn't be heard over the television. Davis, also standing on the porch, saw a silhouette in the front window. As Vincent reached for the storm door's handle, a man opened the inside door. The man turned to say something. Vincent saw Robinson sitting in a love seat with a pistol on the table beside him. Quote, before he could turn and get the pistol, I shot him, he said. Things got messy, and yet again, when pe- when the police arrived around midnight, they found the bodies of three men and a woman. A woman and Michael Robinson's nine-year-old son were the only two survivors. So the neighbor, um, Valerie Glover, ended up surviving. He, didn't, he chose not to kill her, and the nine-year-old son of Michael Robinson was hiding under the bed. He knew where they were. He decided not to kill him. He went in there and told her just to stay quiet, um, which says, I guess, a little bit about his character. He could have easily killed them, and he probably, if he was trying to be as smart of a criminal and as you know, and didn't care about the callousness of his actions, right. he would have probably would have been a smarter thing to do that if you're trying not to get busted. Maybe but, they hid and didn't see it. I mean, they had no. He's wearing a ski mask, and he's she covered. couldn't see she him. Couldn't see to be him. fair, we find that out later. She couldn't see his right. face. She did remember his voice, which ended up really being unfortunate because it gets another man locked up. It helped to get an innocent boy convicted of these murders. Right. Um, because the boy sounded like Vincent. Vincent had, as we mentioned, had a kind of a high-pitched, kind of childish voice. Um, And we'll get into the wrongful conviction who ended up a kid, a 14-year-old kid ends up going down for these murders, if you can believe that. This is heartbreaking. Yeah. So um, three months months later, in the summer of 2007, Vincent got a job that he thought would be no different than others. It was. His friend Marzell Black asked him for a gun for his mother's boyfriend, 
Smothers didn't sell guns and told him so. However, a few months later, Marzell amended his request saying, quote, that dude that was looking for a gun, he asked me how much it would, it, he would have to pay to kill somebody. Um, Vincent, knowing his buddy Marzell uh, wasn't a killer, he said uh, it wasn't for him to do, but if he wanted, he would talk to him and see what it was all about. So he tells Marzell to tell the guy, hey, meet with, meet with my buddy and uh, maybe he can make this happen for you. Mm -hmm. So Vincent drove Marzell and his black Jeep commander to a gas station on Detroit's east side, the rougher part of the city. As they waited in the parking lot, a bald black man opened the door on the passenger side and got in. It was the boyfriend, whom, whom Vincent knew only as Dave. Staring intently into the back of the seat, he explained that the target was his wife. He was leaving her and didn't want her to be alone. Vincent later said in an interview, quote, Who says that? Tell me she's fucking the neighbor or that she killed your baby five years ago, but don't tell me that you were you don't want her to be alone. Yeah, really. So this doesn't fall under the t category of someone he likes to kill. You know, this is just a, a man's wife who he's cheating on her and he, he doesn't want her to be alone after he leaves her. Right. Not a great reason to kill somebody. No. Um, this sounds Vincent, like if I can't have her and I don't want her, but if I can't have her, no one can. This exactly. Just, We've seen those type oh of guys on this show before. Yeah. There's more to this. The monster Gary Green comes to mind. Yeah, there's there's more to this story. Yeah. So Vincent wasn't sure if he should take the job. A year earlier, he'd fallen in love with Cecily, as we mentioned, who'd been pushing him to find a different line of work. The truth was he was tempted to kill Dave on principle. Quote, somebody that, that think like that don't deserve to live, he said. But the job was easy money and the money was good. So when Vincent met again with Dave the day after Christmas, he hadn't decided what to do. As he waited in his Jeep in a parking lot with a 40 caliber pistol hit under his right thigh, Dave walked up from behind in Vincent's blind spot and sat in the car's rear passenger seat. Vincent noted this stealthy, stealthy approach and thought, cop trick. Yep. His, he tightened his grip on his pistol in the back seat. Um, Dave said that he would call that evening pretend, to pretend to place an order for takeout, then take his wife to CVS Pharmacy nearby. So he's going to call call uh, Vincent when it's time and and basically pretend to be calling takeout, right. you know, because his wife's going to be listening to the phone call. Right. He says, he says, quote, when I'm going in into the CVS, you go in and kill her. He said he handed uh, Vincent gloves and protective sleeves to keep the gunpowder residue off his arms, telling him to throw them away after the murder. So. This guy knows what he's doing. He knows how to cover up a crime, and he's basically saying, I'm going to park it in front of CVS, leave my car, my wife in the car in the parking lot, and that's when you're going to do this. Um, he warned him to get rid of the gun and told him that if he was caught, he would gain nothing by snitching. By the time Dave left, Vincent felt sure that the job was legitimate and that Dave was also a cop. And, my, and now that Dave knew who Vincent was, he couldn't say no, he felt. That night, Vincent waited in his Jeep at the CVS, as he was told to, until the call came. Just before 9 p.m., a few minutes later, drove Dave, Dave drove up with his wife and walked into the store, nodding slightly. Oh, it's so creepy. Oh, God, it is. Like, he gets out, and his wife is watching him walk, and he nods to someone. It's like, I wonder if she saw that, you know, and was like, what is that about? God, it sucks that she was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go in with you. I need to get a few things. He'd be like, no, <laughs> right? no. He's like, babe, no, I'll no, get it. What no, do you no, need? You well, here. it's some, it's some right. personal supplies, so I think I'm just going to go in and get them. Right. Son of a bitch. <laughs> right. Too bad that didn't happen. Damn yeah. it. So, uh, so after getting the nod, Vincent walked over to the car, broke the passenger window with a tire iron, and gave the impression of which gave the impression of a robbery. He demanded the woman's purse. She screamed and reaching for something, her seatbelt. Vincent guessed 
She was screaming and fidgeting, doing what I wasn't sure, he said. I didn't wait to find out. He shot her in the head four times, and she slumped over the middle console. Quote, even before I pulled the trigger, it was different, he said. I thought about how wrong it was, and I was fighting myself about whether to do it or not. Later that night, Vincent felt compelled to return to the scene. By then, a crowd of police cars and news vans had gathered. A cop pulled him over, and Vincent produced a fake ID and papers showing that the Jeep belonged to Cecily's father. The officer explained that a witness to the crime had seen a similar Jeep and then waved him on. At home, Vincent learned from the news that Dave was Sergeant, that Dave, the guy who had hired him to kill his wife, was Sergeant David Cobb of the Detroit Police Department. His wife's name was Rose. The fucking police chief or the sergeant mm -hmm. of Detroit Police Department had hired a hitman to kill his wife. Crazy. He was right about him being a cop and not just any cop. Right. He said, for the first time, he felt that he had killed an innocent. Quote, I crossed the line. I had been saying I wouldn't. When he started out as a hitman, he didn't care whether he lived or died, but now he had a wife and stepdaughter who looked up to him. When he told Cecily, she was furious. She had thought that he wouldn't kill a woman. Vincent wasn't sure that she would ever forgive him, but he knew he wanted out at this point. So crazy twist of events, you know, and that he not only killed someone that was definitely innocent, which he said he never would, right. but it turned out to be a a sergeant's wife, um, very high-profile case that is surely going to be investigated much more than the drug dealers that he's been how killing. How do you go about this with the sergeant? Like, how do you not push the investigation and use every single available resource in the investigation, you know, to just to, to not draw attention to yourself as a suspect? You know what I mean? Like, this... Oh, the sergeant? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he was trying to. Um, suspicion fell on him, but they didn't have much... But it didn't take much longer, really. A few months later, Vincent ends up uh, spilling the beans after he's captured. So we'll get into how that kind of the, how that series of events played out. But yeah, I think the I think that it wasn't no it wasn't much of a secret that um, the sergeant David Cobb was screwing around and he'd had motive to kill his wife. And it just seemed suspicious that he walks in and then his wife's murdered like that. It was just there was a lot of things that just didn't seem right. Mm -hmm. I think so. But they, I don't think they had enough evidence to to do anything about it at the time until they got confirmation. Right. So afterward, Vincent couldn't get Rose Cobb out of his mind. For years, Smothers had murdered with little compunction. His work as a hitman had been contingent on a careful ethical dodge. He didn't believe that he had the moral high, high ground um, as he saw it, neither did his victims. Of Pooch, one of his former murder victims, he said, quote, he was a pedophile having sex with 14, 15-year-old girls uh, don't say I killed one of Detroit's greatest citizens. Right. So he had much more means of justifying his actions prior, and this one was really getting to him. He experienced Rose Cobb's death differently. Quote, I don't remember the other ones, but I can still see her moving, screaming, stuck in that seatbelt. He decided that this would be his last job. Killing someone he had deemed innocent had upended his sense of himself, and he had another incentive too. Sicily was pregnant. Yep. So his, his wife was now pregnant. Here we go. Oof. What a stressful situation to be him <laughs> you know not to feel too bad for a cold-blooded murderer like him yeah. but man you wish you, you know he wishes he could take back a lot of the stuff that he'd done at this point oh, and just yeah. live a normal nine to five life you know yeah but there's a lot of people that wish they could make as much money as he made too so you pay for you pay True. for this shit sooner or later you pay for yeah. your lifestyle yeah you pay for your actions in life you do. It's just, regardless it's regardless of what choice you make in life you you pay for it somehow even if you do mm -hmm. everything right you're paying for it through time and paying your taxes and and missing out on on money like this that could be made very easily. But I mean, not that it's the right way yep. to go, but everybody has to pay for this shit. Absolutely. 
So that spring, Cecily gave birth to a girl whom they'd named Kalia after Vincent's sister who had been murdered, we talked about earlier. He began to envision a safer life, but he couldn't see a way out. Quote, it's a situation where, in a sense, you can't stop. Delano, who had ordered most of the killings, was still at large. Quote, though the dude didn't know me, it was like he couldn't find out who I was. You never want somebody with that knowledge in the shadows. Vincent said that he, quote, became unavailable to the people who wanted to hire him, but if he was going to retire, he'd need money to support his family, and former hitmen have thin resumes. He went to lie low in Frankfort, Kentucky. He and Davis, his buddy Davis, had gotten an enticing tip. A local drug dealer had buried $500,000 in his yard. Quote, this is the out, he thought, half a million dollars. So they devised a plan to kidnap the dealer and take the money. Wearing a suit, Vincent approached the dealer in his driveway saying, quote, excuse me, I'm with the homicide division. I'd like to talk to you. Sensing danger, the dealer backed away and got, in his, got, in, got a neighbor's attention. Vincent retreated, saying he'd return with another officer. He never went back. So he took his chance. I, I don't know if that was the best approach, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretending to be a homicide detective to, to let the guy's guard down. I don't know if you really want to do that, especially a criminal. Right, <laughs> and now he knows your face as a homicide detective. Right. Maybe he hoped the guy would say, you know, the guy would invite him inside to try and clear his name of whatever crime the de- supposed detective was trying to say he did. Yeah. And then he could get it, you know, get him inside where he could then get the upper hand right, on him. Right, right. I don't know. But it obviously didn't work out. So after Rose Cobb, however, he never killed again, but the crisis of his conscience had come too late. In April, he returned to Detroit to be with his family. It was a risky trip because though through a source, Vincent had seen a police warrant for his arrest. He was wanted for a hit that had killed Pooch and his girlfriend. He heard that the friend that her friend had survived, and he suspected that she had identified him. So the girl, remember, that was the one where he had the accomplice who shot the, the two innocent women, and one of them survived. Mm-hmm. The one that survived, he feared, would be able to identify him. Right. Um, he was partly right. She had picked his picture out of a photo lineup, but as he later learned, um, he was likely in the lineup because he had been given up by a friend of his, a man named Charles Malone, had been arrested for selling drugs and had talked to the police about Vincent's exploits. So... This Malone knew about Vincent being a hitman and had told the police this was the guy that was responsible for many of the murders that had been going on. Right. One morning, shortly after Vincent returned home, he was cooking breakfast for Cecily when he realized that he was out of grits. Oh, shit. He put the bacon in the oven and stepped outside with Kalia, making his way toward an opening in the fence alongside his yard that led into the parking lot of the grocery store. Before he could get there, a policeman drove up, drew a gun, and ordered him to the ground. Damn, took down by grits. It was worth it, though. I mean, you got to have those grits, bro. <laughs> can, a, can a man just have some grits with Seriously, his breakfast? a little grits and sausage? At least before you take me in, can I have my grit Seriously. breakfast? I'll think a lot clearer. I'll be able to give you better information. Right. Handcuff me in the front. I can still make them. You can join me. Like, it's whatever. <laughs> just let me eat these grits. What do you put in your grits, by the way? What do I put in my grits? Because, I mean, you can't just, you obviously don't uh, eat grits just. Hell no. I by put. The, the way they are. You got to put some I put, syrup or I something. I put a healthy amount of butter, uh, salt, pepper, oh, yeah. and then cheese. Uh, shredded cheese. Ooh, yeah. You just, like you just sprinkle some shredded cheese on top, stir it up while it's still in the pot. And then I throw, I uh, make some like uh, country sausage, toss that in there. There you oh, go. Bro. There you go. It's good stuff. You know what I had this morning? Never done it before. Had sweet potato tots with uh, over medium eggs Ooh. and some uh, sage sausage mixed in. Fantastic, oh, dude! I love sweet potatoes so much. I right. love sweet potatoes. They're so they're so uh, universal. As far they're versatile. Yes, versatile. They're very versatile. You can make them into a dessert. You can also make them into a great side dish, either French fries, tater tots, mashed. Yeah. Sweet potatoes, and you, they're kind of like grits in a way, where you can really kind of 
season them the way you want them. You could put cinnamon, sugar, right. whatever in them. They're good. Yeah, you can Fantastic. go sweet or savory. Go either way. Mm-hmm. Very. And although they are a starch and a carb, um, there are a lot of calories and stuff. They have more nutrients than a normal exactly. potato, so that you can kind of justify your actions. Exactly. There. If, yeah, it's a great substitute for white, just regular white potatoes, which are do nothing right. for you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Empty calories. Yeah. So back to the the murder podcast after right. a, a nice little segue into nutrition again. Right. <laughs> so uh, ten hours later, after being picked up on his way to get grits with his daughter, he was at the Schaefer Police Station in Detroit being interrogated. A video of the interrogation showed him folding uh, folding himself into the seat, his hands cuffed behind him, his his hair was disheveled, and he had thin sideburns and a mustache. He was wearing shorts and a black t shirt. "Quote: I've been talking to a lot of people about you, my friend," Detective Todd said. We know what we know that you are per se a hitman, a contract hitman. We know that you and somebody else were responsible for taking out three people, one girl that li- one girl that lived and she pointed you out. We know that you killed the cop's wife. We know that the cop hired you. So they were on to the sergeant cop um, at this point. Um, he said that Cecily had told the police about Rose Cobb's murder and that she was showing them weapons that Vincent had asked her to stash. So you can tell that Cecily had also felt really terrible about what her husband had done, you know, the killing the innocent wife of the sergeant. Um, that, that actually pushed her to actually kind of give her husband in, yeah. even though she still loved him. Well, there you go, man. But she also Why had... You can't empath- have any loved ones yeah. in your life. <laughs> took them down, man. I mean... <laughs> well, if you're going to be a contract yeah, killer, yeah, that's what I'm can't. saying. Not in that line of work. Not in that line of work. You can't, you can't nope. have both. You, you, can't, you nope. can't have the good family life... And be a killer or a drug dealer. You just can't have both, yep. man. Nope. Um, she also emphasized that he was a great father to their children. If he cooperated, Detective Todd uh, said he would talk to the prosecutor on his behalf. Quote, I'm willing to talk to you about everything, Vincent assured him, but wanted immunity for his family. I can do forever, he said, but I couldn't live with myself if she wasn't able to raise those two little girls, being Cecily. Right. So he, he just wanted his wife to not go, go down for this as well, for harboring, harboring a fugitive or having knowledge of uh, murders that she didn't come to forward with. Right. Over the next 20 hours, Vincent talked. He combed through his memory, trying to keep order, keep the order of hit, his hits straight. Quote, I really believe that Vincent was giving me the 100% truth, Detective Todd later said. The information that Vincent gave about the eight other hits checked out. Detective Todd uh, has interrogated several hitmen, but he said, quote, Vincent was the, mo- was the first one I ever talked to who seemed human. You literally walked away saying, oh my God, what happened to this kid? As the interrogation was wrapping up, the detective said, quote, you said that you did the Runyon job. That's impossible. We got the guy. Surprised to have his confession second guess, Vincent gave details, mentioning the people in the living room and his discussion with Glover in the back room. He looked flabbergasted, Vincent said. He, he said, a kid confessed to it. So this is where we get into the, as we kept mentioning, yeah, not the on kid purpose. that he was convicted. to it. This is some bullshit. Yes, 100%. So... Yeah, so let's get into Devontae Sanford. Seven months before, a young teenager named Devontae Sanford had allegedly told the police that he was responsible for the killings. Devontae's story goes like this. At 1 a.m. on September 18, 2007, he was in his living room when his mother told, uh, returned from the store and mentioned that something had happened on Runyon Street, two blocks away. When he probed for details, she told him not to worry about it and told him to stay inside. Late night Detroit was dangerous for a kid like Devontae, who was 14, blind in one eye, and immature. Quote, he didn't have a 14-year-old's mind, his mother said. He still watches cartoons and played with his sister's dolls. 
That night, Devante's mom left the house again, and he stepped outside and walked up the street. So he couldn't help himself. He had, he was too no, curious had and had to. to inter- he was known for interjecting himself into a lot of stuff that he well, didn't belong in. Well, he's just curious. Later, he's only fourteen, out. man. Kids want to know yeah. about that shit. You know, yeah. kids are curious. And he was he was not only fourteen, but he was he was different too for a fourteen year old. We hear a lot of st- uh, testimony from people who knew him right. later on about that. So when he got down the street to uh, Runyon Street, news vans had gathered and two detectives were following a police dog through the neighborhood. This is following obviously what Vincent had done in. Uh, in that home where several people had been murdered. Right. One of them, Sergeant Russell, flicked his flashlight on and off, and Devante stopped to talk. He mentioned that his uncle was a cop, and when Russell's partner said that he knew his uncle well, Devante got more comfortable. He told the detectives he was trying to help. He really was. This kid was he was a curious kid, and he liked to, as we mentioned, he was kind of a storyteller, um, and he, he just wanted to be a part of this. Right. He, fe- he felt like maybe he was like becoming a cop himself by, by doing this, and it obviously backfired. Right. He told the detectives that he knew who was responsible for, quote, whatever it was that had happened on Runyon Street. As they questioned him, he said that four of his friends had committed the crime, and he'd seen that one of them running through his yard as he fled the scene. Russell was skeptical. Sanford's details didn't line up. Among other things, he had said that he and his friends met before the crime at a nearby diner, which Russell knew had gone out of business. So it's a bunch of it sounds like a completely bogus story. And it is. He just it's just it, some it an up. adult is listening to him and treating him like an adult and he doesn't want to stop talking. Mm-hmm. You see kids do that shit all exactly. the time. Yep, important older men uh are are giving him clout, you know. They're they're kind of listening to right. him and that's probably abnormal for Absolutely. him. Um so the the police officer picked up Sanford the following evening and brought him to the police station probably after they realized they were running out of leads quickly. You know, they were like, well, let's bring that kid in, see if we can do something with that. Exactly. There, Devante allegedly told the police that he had participated in the killing. So now his story's changing. His confession included a sketch of the living room where the murders took place, accurately placing the bodies where they were found, according to police. Devante, now who knows how much questioning they were doing and kind of as we've seen before in false confessions where they lead you. That, you know, maybe the kids, maybe Devante started to draw it and it was wrong. And they're like, well, wouldn't it be over here? And next thing you know, he draws it over there where they want him right, to. Right, right. We've seen this happen time and time yep. again. So Devante had grown up on uh, rough, rough on the east side. According to his mother, Devante's father beat her even when she was pregnant and when, and he was in prison by the time Devante was born. She was hooked on crack and by her own account, not the most attentive parent. Devante was moved from home to home. And when he attended seven schools in almost as many years, when he was eight, he was hit in the face with an egg and subsequently lost the vision of his right eye. He was God, a poor student, egg, and by the bro. time he was in the... I know, that blew me away, because when I kept seeing footage of yeah. him, I was like, I wonder what happened to his yeah, eye, you too. know? I, the last thing I imagined was an egg taken out his dude, eye. Crazy. This, dude, I have this even more freak accident story of a good friend of mine that I grew up with. He has a glass eye uh, now, but when he was like seven or eight, he was walking in the kitchen... And his parents had like a like a bar stool type island, and mm-hmm. his he was just at eye level with the island, right? And his sister was was like walking around, like goofing off on the island, and she was drinking out of a, a coke glass coke bottle, and she mm-hmm. dropped it. The bottle hits the counter and shatters right into his freaking eye, and it just fills his oh one God. eye. One eye, I guess, got closed in time or he covered it or whatever it was on the other side and all these shards of glass go into his eye and he freaking lost his eye because of it. Just Jesus. a freak accident, dude. Like in yeah. a million years you probably couldn't even replay that and get the same thing to happen. Right. 
That's Isn't terrible. that crazy? That's, that's Final Destination shit yet again. I know. I actually, I just saw him the other day. He bought something from me off uh, that I had posted for sale on Facebook. He still got a glass eye, mm-hmm. but you really can't tell. Is it like really noticeable, or does it look? I mean, does it look pretty? It's pretty uh, good? the only thing that you notice is that it just doesn't move as as good. You know what I mean? Like okay. I feel like he can yeah. still move it a little bit, but it doesn't. It's not as quick to move. It almost seems like he has a lazy eye. Like it looks very real. Looks very. Real. I think I'd, I'd have a collection of them. Like in, uh, did you ever see Last Action Hero? <laughs> no. With Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the day, the bad guy in that had a glass eye, and he would switch them out. Like he had all these different creepy designs, like one with like a bullseye, or oh. one with like skull and crossbones. I'm not sure if he shit. can take it out. I've never asked him. Uh, I feel like I should have. If you could, you'd have to have a collection of different ones. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, they get dirty, right? <laughs> if you got to take that thing out and clean it or something, at least disinfect right. it. I don't know. Right. I don't know. That's a crazy yeah. story, though. If I was a hitman, I'd have my my hitman. A glass eye for when I went out to do Dude, that. Dude, you have you know? to have an eye patch, bro. Like dead eye. Oh yeah, eye patch is badass. Sure. <laughs> Hard to not get uh, recognized in a lineup though, <laughs> when you got an eye patch. That's true. You might want to put a little tape over your nose <laughs> to help hide your face. <laughs> right. Right. Um, also messes with your peripheral vision and your depth perception. A little oh, bit very too, true. So you better get closer to make those hits. You think happen. people sneak up on you? Uh, in your peripheral when you got two eyes. Imagine if you got an eye patch yeah. on your left eye sitting in a car. You can't even see right. your damn rear view mirror. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so back to Devante. Um, he was a poor student, and by the time he was in the fourth grade, his mother enrolled him in special education class. Quote, we had to see psychiatrists and social workers. They classified Devante as emotionally impaired. At Osborne High, where he was enrolled at the time of the murders, a security guard recalled him as an attention seeker with a tendency to quote over dramatize. That sounds accurate. Devante didn't appear. Yeah, Devante didn't appear to belong to gangs at the school, but he talked as if he did. Quote: He would say he got into a big fight and he had guns and all this ammo, and it wasn't true. The guard said he just talked a lot. We would tell him to stop doing that, stop claiming things things that aren't true. That was good advice because look at what it ended up costing yeah. him. Um, as he, I mean, I've met kids like that. You know, I remember kids like this. They just couldn't help themselves. They would just exaggerate and lie about a, a ton of no shit. No doubt, man, because they get that attention. They just want attention and to be taken seriously. Yep. And they say, well. Yeah, he never had a father. His mother was on crack. And right. he, you know, was in a terrible part of, you know, part like part of a rough city. He just wants someone to listen to and him. And like you said, he just wanted attention. He wasn't getting attention from his parents. Right. So, um as Devante was questioned by police, he changed key aspects of his story. At first, he laid blame for the crime on the four friends. Later, he named a different group, including a cousin and a cousin's friends. It wasn't until his arraignment that he fully understood what was happening. We've seen this so many mm-hmm. times with young kids, especially with uh, like mental disabilities. Right. I mean, Brendan Dassey, yet again. Jesse, Miss Kelly. Miss Kelly comes to where they just wanted to go home. Yep. Miss Kelly just want. I think it was uh, Desi just wanted to get home and make it for the pay-per-view wrestling match or whatever was going yep. on. Jesse, Miss Kelly was kept in custody way too long without any um, without any adult, no no lawyer, no parent. Yeah, that's um, not right, man. And so this is what happened with Devante too. He said, quote, they was reading every charge. Every charge was like life, life, life. That's when it really kicked in. He said, they serious. <laughs> and yeah. in an interview with a court-appointed psychologist, he said that his confession was false. But at his bench trial six months later, he changed his story yet again. Before the prosecutor finished presenting his case, Devante pleaded guilty to four counts of second-degree murder. And this was all pushed on by his attorney. His attorney was pushing him, saying, they have the evidence, you're going down, you might as well plead for a lower sentence, like admit you did Mm -hmm. it. 
Um, Devante's mother said that he had been pressured by his lawyer, who she later discovered had been disciplined 15 times by the Michigan Supreme Court, and he later had his had his license revoked. Um, she said, quote, our lawyer told us to take the plea. He said they had too much evidence on my son, but we later realized the evidence didn't exist. God, In the trial, Valerie Glover, the woman who had survived the shootings, testified that Sanford's voice sounded like the one she'd heard from under the bed. So this is the one we mentioned where um, the mom or the, the the neighbor Valerie had survived, and the nine year old son of Michael Robinson, the drug dealer, he'd gone there to kill. Right. They were under the bed. They didn't see the face of the killer. They heard the voice. Um, she said that the voice sounded like Devante. "Quote: He didn't leave, he didn't have any bass in his voice." She said of the shooter, "He just sounded like a kid." Which more on that later because obviously Vincent had this very similar right. voice. The prosecution seized on this evidence and that Sanford was the shooter. Later, Devante played a recording of Vincent speaking and agreed that the voice might have been his as well. So mm. what little evidence they had. They had nothing, really, except for the fucking confession, which was constantly changed and only even uh, signed because he was a kid that didn't had no idea how serious this was. Mm. Neither the police nor the prosecutors believed that... Uh, that Devante's confession could have been false, but the scholars have uncovered at least 250 false confessions in the past two decades, and recent studies have found that minors are two or three times more likely to false to confess falsely, as because they obviously don't understand the the level of seriousness to this. They don't understand they could easily spend the night. Like uh, was said in the West Memphis Three by all three of them, they didn't like even when um, when they went to trial, the West Memphis Three. Yeah. Uh, they were saying like we we still didn't think there was a chance in hell that we were going to get convicted because how could you can they they still had a, a, a trust and a belief in the justice system at being naive young children where they're like how can you get convicted for murder that you didn't do how can that happen right. and it clearly can happen because <laughs> it, it does. happens a lot yeah um, so here's a quote interrogations are all about manipulating the suspect's perception of the benefits of confessing while making the suspect think that there are attendant harms if he doesn't confess. Steve, Stephen Drizzen, the co-founder of the Center of Wrongful Convictions of Youth of Northwestern University of Law, which filed an uh, amicus brief on Sanford's behalf, said that, quote, the process preys on the vulnerabilities of juveniles who are naturally bad at assessing and weighing risks. Yep. They often confess, he said, because they just want to go home. That's right. And then the cops make them feel that way. The cops make them feel like they're their friend. And we're just talking. Yep. We're just having a discussion. Now, what did you do next? You know, okay, cool. Yep. Well... Okay, that's 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 good, Devonte. So you know, just sign this, and then you can go yeah. home. You can go home to a jail cell where you spend the rest of your life. Right. Wait. Say what now? Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, despite obvious problems with the prosecution's case, the teen was put on trial for four counts of first-degree murder. His lawyer, later suspected from practice, failed to even try to suppress Devonte's dubious confessions or vigorously cross-examine the police who helped con concoct them. So he just didn't give a shit and did a terrible job representing his client. Midway through the trial, Devante decided to plead guilty to lower charges, second-degree murder, and single firearms count. In April of 2008, he was sentenced at age 15 to a total of 37 to 90 years. Uh, so anywhere from 37 to 90 years. A couple of weeks later, Vincent confessed to the Runyon murders, but the Detroit Police Department showed little interest in reopening the case. So it was only a few weeks later after Devante was convicted that they got Vincent and he confessed to a bunch of murders, including the one that Devante had just gone down for. Right. Um, Vincent was charged with all the killings to which he had confessed except the four on Runyon Street. And according to the information given to his defense attorney, the police interrogated him extensively about every murder other than those four. 
he would end up being sentenced to 50 to 100 years, Vincent Smothers. Quote, nobody ever came, came in on the Devante case, Silver said. The implication is loud and clear. We already got somebody. They knew this, this would open a whole can of worms. Mm. So they, they, they fucking knew. Oh, they knew. God, I hate they, that. They, they sit there and they say how, how forthcoming and how much they believed Vincent, right? The, the detective was like, this is the most, I, I believe him 100%. This is the, like, uh, different than every other hitman I've ever interviewed, right. yada, yada, yada. Except they choose not to believe the four that, that they took down a 14-year-old kid They just for. don't want to admit their wrongdoing, man. We've seen this over and nope. over and over again. But what yep. kind of person would make someone suffer life in prison? Or something they didn't yep. do just because of a pride thing. Like, mm-hmm. none of you are going to lose your jobs. The worst case scenario, y'all are going to get chewed out, and it's going to maybe last a mm-hmm. day. Maybe you get penalized and, and get demoted. Yeah, and obviously the police department's going to be sued. That's that's inevitable. Right. They knew that. So maybe the superiors at the police department, maybe if the, even if the detectives brought that right. to them, it may have gone up the ladder, and they may have decided, no, it's not worth it. A 14-year-old black kid versus us getting sued for who knows how much, hundreds of thousands of dollars and our name being besmirched and everything else. Yeah, That's bullshit. So, so amazingly, Devante would spend the next nine years of his life in prison before finally being exonerated. Um, eventually, after the Michigan State Police investigated Detroit, the De- Detroit Police Department's conduct in the Devante case, prosecutors recommended his exoneration and release, which came in July of 2016. Under a fairly new Michigan law making wrongfully convicted inmates eligible for $50,000 compensation per year of incarceration, Devontae's new lawyers obtained $408,000 awarded Hell for yeah. him. I mean, not that's, nearly that's, enough. That's good, but, but not worth nine years of your no. life, especially like the, you know, the best years of your life or what are supposed to be your, your teenage into your early Dude, 20s. Dude, his most formative know? years from the age of 14, yeah. pretty much, because he was arrested. We're spent 14 to, in a high security yeah. prison with a bunch of, you know, men who had done serious crimes. He, he, he's done, man, he's an amazing kid because he's now running, uh, what was it called? Innocent, he has Innocent a, product, Dreams. Uh, a charity. Innocent Dreams, yeah. He has his own, an organization he started. Yeah. To help young kids like himself that were, you know, in terrible situations and also had maybe some uh, disabilities. Right. And he also, he, also, know, he was saying like when you're... Go I was ahead. just going to say he gives them more training, more resources. Mm-hmm. So they're not left out. And there's also people who will listen to them and take them seriously yep. and mentor them and, and teach them instead of leaving them out here to just make up stories so they can get the attention of some stranger. You know what I mean? I think yep. he realized that. He realized that that was my biggest problem, really, was I just had no resources. I had no education. Yep, 100%. Yeah, he had no, he had very little parenting. Right, no structure. Um, and he had no idea how to handle himself in a situation like he was put in with the, you know, with the police sitting him down and, and using their tactics that they've learned over years you know, to, to really get to a suspect where it's like they're, they're not dealing with a hardened criminal here. They're dealing with a 14-year-old kid who's not equipped to deal with these type of police tactics. Exactly. Has no idea what he's in for. Yep. So, and he wasn't, obviously wasn't being helped by his counsel one bit, who was later disbarred, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Um, unfortunately, there's this thing is not over. He was released in 2016. However, in January of 2020, it came out in an article that, um, he's still being considered D- via DNA evidence, supposedly, quote, blood on the shoe of 14-year-old Detroit boy who was convicted and subsequently cleared of four murder charges reveals DNA from blood of one of the victims. Michigan State Police said after high-tech analysis by a private company, 
State police cautioned, however, it's preliminary information. The company Cybergenetics also said the preliminary unconfirmed results shouldn't be used for civil or criminal justice purposes until more work is done. So they're still testing DNA uh, from Devante, who's been in, been locked up for nine years, then released, and now they're trying to... Now they're testing it again? They're DNA saying this proves he was there. Well, yeah, he walked up on the crime scene while they were investigating it. Yeah, but I don't think he got close enough to get any blood from victims on his shoes, you know? But I just feel like it's bullshit. I don't know how they... Why Why are they testing this now, first of all? Why didn't they test it back then? Right. Because uh, this was in the 2000s. It's not like they didn't have the ability to test DNA, you know? Yeah. And they wait till the dude's already spent nine years in prison and gets released, and now you're going to test it? Right. So odd. And it's tested by a private company, Cybergenetics. Like, I, it's I don't know. It's super sketch. It's, it's, it's super weird, yeah. right? Um, we'll see where that goes. Hopefully nowhere. Um, as for Vincent Smothers, prison life has been rough. On December 26, 2009, the anniversary of the day that Vincent's father died and Rose Cobb's murder, he attempted suicide by hanging and was barely brought back to life. He was actually found unconscious. His bowels evacuated, seemingly dead, but they were able to revive him. And he spent like a week in a coma before coming back out of it. Um, and like many who have crossed paths with him, Vincent doesn't know what to make of himself. He feels that he is, quote, not a bad person in the sense that I'm not an asshole, even though he did some of the worst things imaginable. His punishment is just, he said, quote, I think society would take a hit if someone with my criminal past was to be free. At times, he feels overwhelmed by the years ahead of him and regrets that his suicide attempt didn't work. He talks longingly of the day when I, quote, run across whoever will kill me. Damn. And then with that, that ends this case, which is just insane, start to finish. It really is, man. It really is like a movie, like you Crazy. mentioned before. And you hear about yeah. it, it's like, why is there not a movie about this guy's life? I know, and I looked, I looked, I Googled, I, I typed in Vincent Smothers into the search engine of my podcast app, and I didn't, I didn't really find any other podcast that had covered him, especially like in a full episode. Right. You know, I think it may have been mentioned in their episode or something, but a full episode on it yeah. is definitely deserved. No doubt. Just for the and for the Devante part of it as well. That needs that needs to get out there. People need to know yeah. like whatever whatever kind of action that we can take to help <laughs> stop this. Why they want this kid in prison so bad? Like Jesus Christ, he's doing so much good now. You know too it's yeah. like he was actually reformed now i heard that he he was rough in prison and even vincent really and, and uh didn't vincent meet him in prison oh yeah, yeah. vincent met him they, they met each yeah. other and he told vincent that you're the you're the reason i'm locked yeah up. <laughs> when vincent met him he was like yeah he came across as a cold person but of course he did he went in at 14 right. years old with the mind of he was convicted uh, of four murders that he didn't commit that is as a, as a as a young right. boy, like you'd have to learn to be cold, right? He's like, I tried to be helpful to the right. police and look what they did. They got me convicted of more four murders. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then you're going in, you're already in prison. You're already hardened. And guess what, bro? Everybody, yeah, has to everybody be, right? in prison says they're innocent. Everybody didn't do it. He must have learned early on that he had to be cold and tough in prison or else he wouldn't survive as a young that's boy. That's right. You know? He didn't want to be taken advantage of. So, yep. I mean, and that's obvious because once he got out, you see the change that he did. If he was such an asshole and this killer, he would have went. He would have went into a life of crime. But the fact is, he didn't know shit about the life of crime. All he knew was right. that he needed to be a beast to survive in prison. That's all he knew. Yep. He and then once he got out, it's like his whole frame of mind changed. I mean, he yep. did exactly 100%. what you should do. Not that the prison helped in that in any way. The prison just made him worse. I'm sure his life worse. His 
his perspective on humanity. It made all that shit worse. It didn't reform him at all. But the fact that someone can come out ref- and reform themselves, leave the dude alone. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Ah, damn. You're actually yeah. taking more away from society now. Like, he's actually a... a yeah, he's, he's running a program helping the youth in these right. areas. You know what I mean? It's like... Are you going to do it? You know what I'm saying? Right. Are they going to do it? No. Yeah. Right. Nope. They're still busy trying to find a way to lock him back up again it makes somehow. makes no sense to me, dude. Amazing. No sense. Right. All right. Speaking of sense. You have a detailed confession <laughs> from a hitman saying he did this. He doesn't. He's not confessing to any other random murders or anything that you can't right. prove. He's could, Everything he's done could be corroborated via evidence and everything else. It was so, spot on. Yeah, it's just amazing. Spot on it's confession. so clear that Devontae didn't do it, had nothing to do yeah. with it. He just interjected himself. He was young and immature, and you know he made some bad bad calls as far as he didn't know what the hell he was in for with dealing with you know police exactly. who were trying to get a conviction. So exactly. Let's talk about some Oh My Gaia. All right, dude. Let's do it. Oh My Gaia is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben, and aluminum-free organic ingredients. Guys, if you don't know, we have our very own scent called True Crime Pine. And there are tons of other ones to choose from as well, including vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, uh, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, uh, sailor. Sailor is a great new one. Pear, which we will be giving away our last jar of pear uh, on this episode. Isn't that right, Lauren? That is right. I'm looking for someone to give it to right now, as a matter of fact. So because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the word creeper, C R E E P E R, and you can get 15% off your order at ohmygaia.com. That's O H M Y G A I A.com or at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram. Guys, you won't regret it. The price point is right and the quality is even better. Um, I've tried. The price is right, bitch. It, it is. It is. And I've tried many uh, organic deodorants and different things and uh, scented oils and stuff. And Oh My Gaia is where it's at, guys. It's consistent. The smells are always great. They're not too strong, but they're not too weak. They're, it's a good product. Yeah, I don't think you'll regret giving it a shot. And whoever wins this pair is going to be excited as well. Hopefully you haven't tried I it I found yet. the person. I do believe I found Uh-oh. them. Uh, we're going to go with Jen, who mentioned us in her story. She's done it several okay. times. Um, and she's on Instagram, Lady Ono Skellies. I don't know how that's pronounced, but Jen, congratulations. We will contact you and we will get you connected with Wendy. Mm-hmm. And you've won the last jar of Oh My Gaia pair for our three week giveaway. So, congratulations. Nice. And to all of you that have uh, mentioned us in your stories and shared our sh- show online and everything, thank all of you. Um, we wish you, we could give you all a jar. You I know? know. And I'm sure this won't be the last so. giveaway. We'll, we'll do a giveaway again. Yep. No worry. We've done a few of these Oh My Guy giveaways over the years, so there'll be another correct. one pop up. So. All right. So let's uh, let's get into reviews. Thank you all who have gone and rated and reviewed the show on iTunes and whatnot. Um, it it definitely helps a lot. And let's see. So we last week we did a Patreon. We'll talk more about Patreon in a minute. Right. So we're gonna we got two weeks worth of reviews to drive through real quick. We got Maria sixteen eighty three in the U S said love. I love this podcast. I'm officially addicted. Thank you. Fishing Girl, 9245 in the U.S., said, You had me at bodies and barrels. Five stars. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, Jupy BXG in Great Britain said, You should listen. Top blokes. Five stars. Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, 
Donna Lynn uh, in the U.S. said, bedtime stories, five stars, fire emojis. Uh, yeah, let's see. So far, no nightmares. Great banter. Oh, okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, Ash loves true, true crime in the U.S. said, hooked, five stars. Um, Joe Lengel, 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 Lengiel, Lengiel in the U.S. said, love, love, love it. I've always loved true crime while I work, listening to in-depth stories. Uh, we helped get through the nine, nine to five. Thank you. John Gilbert in the U.S. said, had the old title on accident. My bad. Had the old title. Hmm. Okay, three shouts, shout outs now, and you've done both my case suggestions, Methany and Jeff Pelly. Oh. oh, man, John. That's right. John has come up with man, some big ones. Yeah, there you go. appreciate you, John. You deserve all the shout outs, John. Good job. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Hodge is the I don't know. It's just a bunch Nailed of letters it. in the U.S. said I so enjoy this podcast. Let's see if maybe they give us their name. Hold on. Um, also, Aaron Platner in the U.S. said great podcast, five stars. I'm trying to get more info on this one. Let's see. No, I don't see any name in here. So it's H A J J S H D K S D J S. It's pretty much the middle row. Fell on the keyboard. It's like the middle row. Yeah, yeah. You just pretty much typed all that. That's cool. Okay, now we got uh, Shanna Monster in the U.S. said, my favorite podcast, five stars, fire emoji. These guys are the best. Thank you. Uh, Keat543 in Canada, up ah. in Canada, mate. Uh, I just found this podcast. Love the banter, well-researched, and cases fun to listen to. Thank you. Uh, Shaz Diet in the U.S. said, smoking, five stars, fire emojis. Chassis Baby in the in Canada. Uh, said five stars. Hooked on hooked from John's St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. Love the songs at the beginning. You should totally be writing and singing for serial killer shows. I agree, Michael. Is that a thing? Can your you... talents are not going to waste, but they're not being fully utilized. <laughs> Is there serial killer shows that need singers? I don't. I don't. I don't know what that's what that would be uh, referring to. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm happy doing. AC Brooksy. A.C. <laughs> Brooksy in the U.S., actually from Cowpens, South Carolina. Oh, uh, shit. It says it's quickly become one of the favorites, and it says, P.S., Michael, I'm not sure if you know how close to Gaston County Cowpens is, familiar. but we shared a mutual serial killer. Yeah, the dude that put the bodies in trailers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, really? there was like a bunch of bodies oh, cool. found in like uh, transfer truck trailers, I think, like semi-trailers. Oh, uh, yeah. He, or not a country, bunch of bodies, he went but by? Uh, Big County, I think, was his name or something like that. Uh, Big Country? Uh, something like that. But uh, yeah, I think they okay. found two people alive when they caught him. Oh yeah. shit! If I'm if I'm thinking of the same same guy, if I'm not mistaken, we might have to look into that one. I know we didn't do it last time; it was suggested because it was still very new and a lot of shit was still coming out. Okay. So maybe I'll look into that again. We can cover that one. There you go. Uh, then we got Lee from Australia. Uh, said good day, you, you mad bastards. I'll go all right. Love freeloading on your stuff. Keep up the good work. <laughs> all right, Lee. <laughs> Appreciate it. Lee is such an Australian name. Yeah. Oh, Lee. Oh, Lee. Oh, Lee. Yeah. Oh, Lee, boy. You know what? And this, and this last one, Prince of Pancakes said, Five star men. If you like true crime, speculation, great chemistry, humor, music, off topic tangents, murder, cult shit, mispronounced city names, bad accents, and all natural deodorants, Seinfeld, Always Sunny, and Bill Burr impressions. I went for the trifecta. Five star review, $5 Patreon, and ordered something. Except you gave us a one star review, man. Oh, really? Prince of Pancakes. Yeah, all that. They're talking about how they gave us a five-star review, but it's one star. Oh, so I they think just clicked the wrong should... thing. Yeah, you clicked the wrong thing, Prince Prince of Pancakes. It's you, okay. We still that love may you. Be the... But if you could, go f please amend Dude, that. that may be <laughs> the most perfect review we've ever gotten, too, except for the one star. I know, right? Like, you nailed us. The best review we've ever had was you one totally star. You totally get us. Yeah, that's right? 
Yeah, we should put that review at most relevant. That should show up on iTunes, most relevant. I mean, if it wasn't one star, yeah. obviously. Right. Uh, if it was just like four uh, stars. Yeah, he said, I went for the trifecta, five-star review, $5 Patreon, <laughs> and ordered some. Oh, my Gaia. Also, Patreon is so worth it. Except, yes, yeah, please, uh, if you take a second, go click five stars on yeah. that review. Keep the review, yeah, though. Just that copy and paste that whole review. That oh, was great. Uh, yeah, that was awesome. But, yeah, so there we go. So, but uh, speaking of Patreon, That leads right? us to Patreon. Patreon. Yeah, speaking of Patreon, patreon.com slash truecrimeguys. Uh, that's what he's talking about. That's he right. joined the $5 tier, which got him the uh, gold creep van gold sticker. Gold creep van sticker. Very prestigious. Only way you can get it. Um, or But you could join in for $2 a month and get access to our exclusive premium episode that we do every month. We did one last week. Um, and also extra content. Uh, me and Lauren did a almost an hour uh, just kind of behind the scenes conversation. Sometimes I'll I'll call him during the day and we'll just we'll talk about different things. And this time we were talked about uh what was it? Mob uh mafia slang terms. Mob, yeah, mafia. Slang. I mean, that was half of Actually, I think the best part of those that we the, the, what ends up being the best part of those conversations when you call is when we're done with whatever thing you're called about the mafia slang or whatever and then we just end up like we're, we can't hang up the phone we end up just keep rambling for a while that ends up being the best part of life. i know yeah that's what i was gonna say i mean half of it is mafia slang and the other half is just it's just inside it's just inside information it's just us talking to each other as friends not so much as podcasters or worrying about staying on a tangent or whatever it's just it's yeah. just you know it's tangent free because there is no there is no main subject but we have a good time yep. talking about that stuff and it's if there ever is a Look behind the scenes. That's it. I mean, that's that's kind of how we talk yeah. before the show. We kind of get our bearings, kind of get warmed up, you know. Um, but yep. that's a good insider look. So, yeah. And last week we did the Patreon exclusive episode, which is why there was no freebie released to exactly. you guys. And that was the Kentucky Cannibal Boonhelm. Fantastic. Oh, Wild West Boonhelm. We love uh, the Wild West was, ones, guys. If you guys haven't listened to our Wild yeah. West ones, we really have fun on those. Because they're old and people yeah. don't get offended, and there's a lot more jokes to be made, um, mm-hmm. and they're 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 over over romanticized a lot of times, so that makes them fun too. You know, every yeah, every Wild West one we've done could be a movie, from Billy the Kid, yep. Wild Bill Hickok, The Bloody Benders, Boonhelm. They could all be movies, in my opinion. There, and I'm sure. I mean, there are movies made about a lot of them, but you know, yeah, no doubt. Um, but yeah. Well, let's talk about your other show, Michael. Oh yeah, let's talk about Strange and Unexplained. If you guys are already experienced the True Crime Guys uh, trifecta, and you're already listened to everything TCG has to offer, then uh, you actually haven't. If you haven't checked out Str- uh, Strange and Unexplained, because it is also a TCG production, um, it's a different style podcast. Uh, there's a lot more um, interview audio. There's nine one one calls if available. Um, and I kind of guide you it's guys. It's less silly. That. It's a more serious take on true it crime. It is. It's a more serious take because a lot of the cases are unsolved, and uh, we're yeah. we're kind of trying to spread awareness for some of these cases, kind of get keeping this information out there. So it is a little more serious of a vibe. Um, but yeah. we we have we have a lot of fun with that one too, though. The production quality is every bit as good here as, as true crime guys as, that you would expect from a true crime guys production. Uh, Lauren has his own segment on that show uh, where he does the Lauren synopsis. Lauren synopsis uh, <laughs> breaking down the case like breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. Exactly, with one of the one of the funnest uh, intro songs I've ever done. Sometimes it feels out of place because yep. sometimes I'll be like at a serious moment, you know, bringing bringing the case to a close, and then I'm like, yeah, eh, let's hit the Lauren synopsis. <laughs> Dude, speaking of uh, your productions and your, 
Speaking of your intros, though, last week's was epic. So we did the Kentucky Cannibal Boone Helm, right. and I told him I I I begged him to do his uh, his own version of Man Eater by Hall and Oates. So fun. He's a man eater, dude. It was epic. Was... So it's worth signing up. It's worth two bucks just to hear the intro <laughs> last week that Michael did. He did an amazing job covering Hall and Oates Man Eater. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. That was that was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. The covers are always fun. Um. Yeah. But yeah, so you got Strange and Unexplained. That's patreon.com slash podcast. Um, if you want to get early episodes of Strange and Unexplained that are released on Thursdays, um, the regular episodes are released every Monday. There'll be a new one coming out, or one just came out, rather, two days ago, when you guys are hearing this on Wednesday. Um, yep. So, And then there's also two other shows on there, because Strange and Unexplained is so serious. You know, I got to gotta have somewhere where I can be silly and be experimental. So I have two small shows on there, one called The Palette Cleanser Podcast, and one is called Strange Shorts. Uh, Strange Shorts is mostly lighter crimes uh, that there's not a whole lot of information to, but they're just interesting. Uh, like I did one where a shark barfed up a guy's arm at like uh, at basically <laughs> this, this town's version of SeaWorld. Um, a shark barfed up an arm, and it ended up being connected to a crime. Uh, yeah, it's... I think oh, that's on shit. Strange Shorts two or or three, but uh, you could that's read. Amazing. But that one that one's super interesting. Uh, but yeah, just little cases like that. Uh, little. So wait, you're telling me you're telling me on Strange and Unexplained's Patreon page, you get three shows for a dollar each per month. Three dollars right. a month gets you three shows. How can you beat yes. that? Yes, yes, pretty much. And what I do is I release. Of course, Strange and Unexplained gets released every week, right? And then also I alternate for palate cleanser. So I do a palate cleanser one week, and then the next week I do strange short, and then the next week I'll do a palate cleanser, and then so on, so on. So we got a strange short coming up this week, guys. I don't know if you can spend $5 per month better than being a $2 patron of our mm -hmm. show and getting the, all the bonus content that we have to offer, the like 150 audio recordings we have on there right. or whatever and everything else, plus another $3 a month for your three shows on uh, it's SMU a lot of content man. true crime guys production true crime guys productions there's a, a lot, lot of content, content for five dollars you'll never be bored again yeah i don't think so i really don't think so and the way that we've kind of got it spaced out is you you rarely go many days without something being released from tcg productions that's right that's right all right is that about do it we'll see you guys again for a freebie next week and uh keep, stay safe and keep creeping y'all yeah, keep creeping guys in the desert, we like a mirage It's okay if you clicked on us Cause you thought we was True Crime Garage Now we ain't mad at you Sit down, let us talk at you I'm talking to the Creeper Army We out here making murder, get murder, get murder True Crime Garage In the desert, we like a mirage It's okay if you clicked on us Cause you thought we was True Crime Garage Now we ain't mad at you Sit down, let us talk at you I'm talking to the Creeper Army We out here making murder charming Thank you.